Today we're here with Aaron Armstrong. Aaron Armstrong is a really good friend of mine. He's also a taxidermist, a trophy room designer, and a hunter of 30 years, I believe, right? Uh, actually, well, further than that. More than 30 plus years? Yeah. And you have done some very serious hunts. Uh, I've seen some of the stuff you've created in your house. I've heard about the late night stories, of people dropping off stuff uh, oh, yeah. at your shop in the wee hours of the morning. Floating halfway across the world, so they can make it. You can make a nine-foot bear of some sorts, to, so they can put in their house. Uh, and most recently, you just designed a a trophy room that's about the size of most people's houses, about two thousand square feet, right? Oh uh, yeah. Well, the room itself's fourteen hundred ish square feet, uh, nineteen-foot ceilings. Um, basically, put a mountain in a dude's house. Yeah. And if you've ever been to a Bass Pro Shops and you see the scenery around the Bass Pro Shops, that's essentially what we're talking about with the trophy room. What design. it looks like. 1,600 square feet of it and a, a 19-foot ceilings. Um, I've seen some of the progress pictures. Yeah, you're definitely away from from some of the inner circle here off the podcast uh, for all of us you know, working out and hanging out together because you were busy working uh, on that job specifically. And yeah. so I want to kind of dive into your background and I want to have you give an introduction for you know y- you your your business as a taxidermist and also as a hunter and just kind of give people you know a, an introduction for a couple of minutes about uh, you and your history. Yeah, so basically I come from a pretty long line of outdoors people. Um, my dad, my grand, both grandfathers, um, both avid out- outdoorsmen. Um, my grandparents were mostly fishermen. Did a little bit of hunting. My dad uh, did a little bit of hunting again, uh, passionate, passionate fly fisherman, uh, trout fisherman. So um, I would say about the age of five is when I really kind of picked up that real love for animals that I can, you know, really remember. And watching a lot of TV shows, if there was anything TV show wise, uh, book magazine it had animals in it hunting outdoors I was in it it was really kind of the only way that you I were hate. you were into it or you were in the magazine no into reading yeah. it comprehending yeah. it um, it was one of the things for me in school when it, if there was any sort of report I had to do or whatever I tend to do it about nature animals it was something I would retain if mm-hmm. I was reading of mice and men yeah yeah blow it so i mean it didn't matter so <laughs> you know it, it, if it, it like i said but if it had a shark attack in it perfect right up my alley all right you know? he loved jaws no for sure <laughs> yeah. so but um so from that point there you know i'd uh gone with my dad my uh my godfather my uncle jim so we'd go bird hunting that was kind of my introduction to it my dad taught me how to uh, trout fish on the middle fork of the Consumnes River. Um, and that in itself was a lot like hunting because water's crystal clear, fish could see you, so you had to like sneak up to the the different holes and because and, they were wild trout. So they'd see you and they'd take off, they wouldn't bite, whatever. So there was a maturation process in that, you know, and as I got older and got more into just wanting to hunt and, and you know, pestering my dad to take me. Um, we'd go different little day trips, weekend trips. And so once I got into high school, um, I was on my own fairly young. Uh, and But I had, uh, I basically 
there was a taxidermy shop in Old Town Roseville down where kind of like all of the bars and things yeah, like Old that. Yeah, Old Roseville. Right? Yeah. And so uh, it was actually like right down the street from where like the boxing donkey is and, and things like that. So uh, there was a fly fishing shop there and there was a taxidermy shop. Um, I'd go in those both days or both places uh, on my way home from uh, from school um, and I'd stop in and kind of harass uh stan who owned the fly fishing shop and 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 then i'd go over and i'd hang out with john until he closed harass is probably an understatement uh probably yeah (laughs) so but uh so i again stuck with john uh and i was 16 ish at that point and had gotten you know kind of interned with him just i was coming by there every day so i was like here can i sweep the floor can i do this whatever and so um, I hadn't really killed a big game animal yet or anything like that. Or, but I always, you know, I I'd, I'd, I'd shot a pheasant, uh, shot some birds. So uh, he had a buddy of uh, a buddy of ours who's now a very good friend of mine uh, who lived up in Red Bluff, and he was hunting bears with hounds, and um, that was kind of my introduction into big game hunting. Um, went up there, chased some bear, chased some bears, and in Northern California with hounds back when we could, it's illegal now. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, kind of, that's kind of where it all started right there. And I still have, so that bear, my former boss, John, he ended up mounting that one for me. The first bear I shot with Jeff. And then we, uh, I still have it hanging in my shop to this day. So it's just kind of, he's since passed. So it's kind of an homage to him. So. Where, I, I've seen your shop. Uh, you have probably what thirty or forty pieces in your shop. Yeah, that's not everything, though. I mean, that's I mean, everybody else's stuff gets mounted it's, first. My, there's a it, freezer. It's, it's a for, lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's it's, it's all not over. a lot compared to a lot of people. But I know. you're right. But <laughs> for somebody like myself who's not around it all the time, when you see thirty right. or forty different pieces, that's a lot to take in at one time. Right. That's why it's near the front door of my house. Yes. So if you don't like it, you can leave. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> it, simple. It, so. it, it's a quick statement. Uh, like this is me. Like it. Like it or leave it. Pretty like, much. Get yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was your history for how you got into big game hunting. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously a taxidermist now, and you do trophy room design. But a part of all this is actually your career as a hunter. Um, I actually got to go with you up to Oregon the be- very beginning of this year. You took me on my first hunt. Uh, I shoved you into the deep end of the of pool. Of everything. Yes. Yeah, and we went big game hunting. Yeah. And you you didn't have to, like, re- reluctantly shove me into the pool. I was like, shove me! And you're like, okay. And you Sparta kicked me in the back, but I was ready Pretty for much. it. Pretty yeah. so, much. So it worked out. He liked it. Yeah. Talk to us about your experience hunting and, like, five of your most favorite hunts. You also have one very intense hunt that you've told us a story about as well. Yeah, I've got a few. But, there's a couple. You know, we had we had we wanted to hear some of the experience of you, for you as a hunter because for people who have never done hunting before in, in, to any degree, um, I don't think that they uh, understand the depth uh, of hunting, the types of hunting, and also the money that's in hunting as well. Because I was blissfully unaware of all of those things until I went out with you. Yeah, there's a, so there's a lot to kind of go with on there on that on that topic. But um, when it comes to hunting, you know, like I said, I kind of started, you know, just deer hunting, local bear hunting, bird hunting, 
those types of hunts here. So when I had my first opportunity to go out of the country or even out of state even, uh, my first out of state hunt was to Colorado and uh, when I was 18 uh, for mule deer. So it was one of those things and it captured me really, really early on um, was being able to feed myself from it. And yes. especially since I was on my own at a very young age at 17, I was on my own. And so, um, buddy of mine, it, he'd pick me up after school and then we'd go, you know, chase pheasants and hunt ducks and geese. And pretty much I ate that all my life. So it, I, there was a sense of pride, but there was also a sense of just knowing where my food was coming from it wasn't coming it wasn't coming in a phone bed bed and a cellophane blanket so it was you know i knew when that animal was taken i knew how it was taken care of um and so i know how long it had been in my freezer so and just i mean it made me feel good to kind of have that connection to my food so fast forward you know going on these other trips and and going you know, I've, I've kind of been all over the place. Um, and when we venture out of the country, I, I think um, some of these hunts get bad names or a stigma that's, you know, uh, tagged to it is called the trophy hunter. You know, you, yes. are, you are just a trophy hunter. You're just, you know, shooting them for their head. Well, in essence, you know, that's true. But it is also what is mandated by our own U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife and the USDA. The USDA won't allow us to bring back any soft tissue, any meat, any anything like that. Um, so anything we from, bring from outside the country, right? Canada, um, some things from Mexico. I mean, it, and it's harder to bring stuff back from Mexico. But I've brought stuff back from Canada with no problem. Um, so Canada is the one that you could you could bring meat back from pretty easily yeah and unfortunately now that alaska's you know been a state for 50 ish years yeah you know, all the big game hunting up there it's state's yeah. based so you can bring it right back you can bring it right back yeah it's not a, it's there's no there's no customs issues or anything like that or any even uh, the only thing you have to do is declare it when you come back into the state but that's the state of california thing so since we kind of talked uh, a little bit about the politics of hunting let's dive a little bit deeper into that specific segment so for you know, we had Doris Malakitas on who was here a couple of weeks back, and she talked about depredation tags. Sure. Um, talk to us or, or people out there about some of the ways that uh, the land stewardship is is taking care of the population through controlling the population with tags or, um, like, ethical hunting and, and things of the sort within the realm of what um, these individual states are doing, but also those that are kind of shepherding hunting uh, to the public are doing as well. Yeah, a lot of different states. I mean, all of the states vary with regulation. So, I mean, there's some of the southern states that will let you take up to, I mean, a deer a day uh, because the population is so high. It's so dense. Um, some of them have uh, basically a deer a day. That's a lot of meat. <laughs> yeah, uh, but a lot of population too yeah um the other thing is is they'll make you shoot a doe before you can get buy your buck tag or make you shoot two does before you buy a buck tag there's certain states that will ha- make you do that because any, any reason for that yeah because of the doe buck to doe ratio they want to maintain uh an equity in that so where you're not having 
too few bucks and all these does because then if you have does that basically aren't breeding they're just drawing on the on the resources and on the environment and they're not putting anything back for those for those that don't like guns and aren't hunters but we're going to convert them by the end of the show a doe and a buck is what uh basically the doe is a male or a female and then the uh, buck's going to be the male or a bull is going to be the male in some animals and a cow is going to be the female all right so so um, so Talk a little bit about tags and uh, applying for a tag on like a public land hunt or or working with a private landowner. Yeah, so I think what you were mentioning before, like with the depredation tags, those depredation tags have to do with problem animals. So in the state of California, if you have livestock or, you know, a crop, you have the right to protect it. And so if a bobcat is coming in or a mountain lion or bears coming in and killing your livestock, your chickens, your cows, um, you can get a depredation tag and um, take it out of season, basically. So there is no season that it, that basically locks you into that depredation tag. It's any time at that point. So with that, um, that animal goes back to the department too. It, like you have to forfeit it. It's not something that you can even eat or whatever. They do whatever with it. I'm not exactly sure. Um, you're, you're basically just killing it because you want to get rid of it, and then they handle the disposal of it. Sure. Yeah. So with that, those those come into play, like with mountain lions in California, we have a huge problem with them um, because we don't manage predators very well. Um, Yeah. And and I don't think a lot of people uh, would know that because it's not inherently obvious. You know, when we are nocturnal. Yeah. When we were up with uh, Ben Rodriguez, who runs Mm -hmm. Help to Hunt, he's an outfitter up in Oregon. He said something to to me. He's like, dude, if it's got claws or fangs. You get shot. You on get shot site. on sight. Yep. And that just resonated with me because he's like, "That's top tier predator. If mm-hmm. those things just run out of control of the population, like they're just going to completely destroy the ecosystem." True. Yeah. And with California, we haven't managed mountain lions in fifty years. What about bears? Uh, bears get managed, and there's uh, a fall season that you can. I think the quota is seventeen hundred and fifty bears for the state. Um, that we can take, and once that quota is filled, then they basically send out a press release uh, and close the season. We used to hit that quota, and we used to hit that quota pretty much every year when we were able to run bears with hounds. They, uh, animal rights activists had taken that, basically had lobbied to get that taken away, saying that it was inhumane to, to run the dog or run talk, bears with dogs. Talk about what it means to run bears with dogs. So basically you're just, you're, you have a, basically your truck with a dog box in it that has your dogs in it, usually anywhere from, oh, four to eight dogs in there, uh, usually hounds. Um, and what they'll do is ride around on mountain roads until you come across a fresh, uh, fresh sign, and well, you'll usually have a dog either on the back of the box or on the hood with it that has they have a platform up there, mm-hmm. and that that hound will pick up that scent, and he'll usually bark and you'll stop, check tracks, see which way they're going. Um, usually, if it's a smaller bear, usually won't turn out on it, but um, sometimes when you get a bigger female, I mean, they're it's a pretty good sized track. Um, but that was one of the things that with running bears with hounds let you do because bears are really hard to identify sex wise you until they get about 350 pounds you could look at 
a male and a female and never be able to tell the difference. It's mm-hmm. not like they have antlers. And so <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. you actually have to look yeah. at the genitals and look for that. And it's really hard too, especially at different times of year because the mm-hmm. hair covers. Yeah, and so. it, the, iron, the, the ironic part and all of that is of the bears I have seen, I've never seen a bear's ass. I've always seen a bear from the front. Right. Yeah. So, so, it's, it's, so it's super hard when it comes to that. Um, when they're in a tree and you've ran them with the dogs, you up can the act, tree. yeah, and you can, or if they're, or if they've got them bayed, which is actually kind of cornered, you can usually get around to take a look at them and see if that's an animal you want to shoot because there's some big sows out there. As long as they're a sow is a new term uh, we introduced. What yeah, is that? so that's a so that, female. So in bears, it's sow and a boar. So sows the female, boars the male, and okay. so just like with pigs. Okay. So, and you wouldn't want to shoot a sow sometimes because. Well, if 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 it's a dry sow, meaning that she doesn't have cubs, and you it is actually illegal for you to shoot a, a sow with cubs, uh, yeah. if they're accompanied with cubs at all, um, and then the other re- regulation is you couldn't shoot a bear that's under fifty pounds. A bear that's fifty pounds is an awfully small bear. That'd be that'd be <laughs> usually if it got separated from its mom. That'd be kind of the only reason why. Yeah, you know, so that that, that is a small bear because I remember very. there was uh, we were up in Tahoe in November of last year and there's these two black bears just coming into the campsite right on the water. Yeah, they're pretty they're and pretty one was limping people. around and I did he had to be four hundred pounds. No mm-hmm. so, he was a small one and then the other one looked double his size. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to a guy that had seen him before and he had lived there and he's like, Yeah, these ones are small compared to the ones that uh, don't come down here <laughs> And yeah. I was like, Yeah, that's the that would be scary to see a bear that's, you know, over a thousand pounds would be pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, black bears aren't going to get that big. Um, there, I mean, you'll get a big, big black bear, six hundred pounds. I mean, that's a giant. Maybe, maybe the weights were a little off. Maybe it was a little bit more like 200, 400 yeah. that I'd seen. Yeah, m- those are pretty common. Um, four hundred pound bear is even a huge bear. Yeah. I mean, that's I've killed a couple of them. They're, I mean, they're they're big. Uh, I want to yeah. go right into that because I you I have seen the video of your bear hunt, which you said was like your most adrenaline pumping hunt you've ever had because of the way the hunt turned uh, potentially very dangerous. On yeah. you. Do you want to give the, the the backstory and talk about the the bear hunt you did in two thousand five? Yeah. So, um, it actually um, I had really wanted to hadn't actually I hadn't really wanted to shoot a brown bear with my bow. Until um, there was a guy that I, you know, he's a pretty uh, well-traveled hunter, and it's Jack Brittingham out of uh, Texas. And he had actually, I'd watched a video of him shooting at the time the world record brown bear with his bow. And What was the world record at the time? Um, well, this, I think, I think that bear, I'd have to look, but I think he had uh, 29 or and some change inch skull measurement. So what they do is they, they measure them from the length and width. And so combine those two and yeah, it, it, it's a giant bear. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. It's a, what it's was a, the weight? That bear probably weighed that's, in excess of 1200 pounds. That's a, that's a 14 shit. and a half inch head on average width and length. It was like a volt. It was like a, it was, <laughs> it was like shit. a Volkswagen stood up when he shot that, when he, when he got right before with he a shot bow. the bear with a bow. So and, he had, had, and he had a pistol w- laying in the grass with him. And so that uh, was... Hopefully that pistol was packing a punch. Oh, yeah. I, it was a Desert Eagle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so we're shooting some pretty hefty rounds. And his guide also had a, had a weapon. Got so, you. 
um, that's usually not a hunt that that a guide will do just solely on archery merit. No, no, yeah. no, no. You have backups and, and contingency sure. plans in place. So For back sure. to your hunt. So yeah, when once I saw Jack take that uh, take that bear with his bow, I kind of had it in my head that you had man, to beat him. No, not at, not at all. It, it was, was just reasonable to do so with the bow. It, I was like, man, that would be so cool to to see if I could make it happen. And so booked the hunt. Um, actually called Jack and picked his brain a little bit because I wanted to find out what he kind of did building arrows. And because a lot of people are like, oh, you got to shoot a fast fast arrow, have a fast bow. Speed doesn't kill. Uh, kinetic energy does so I mean it was more or less about getting that bow turned up as far as weight wise so it was going to be able to drive a heavy arrow but then when it when it hit you it was going to leave a mark so yeah um and your, so, your hunt was a flawless execution so continue on well yeah, yeah I mean um so book the hunt um and actually two weeks before that I went on a uh, an American bison hunt up in Canada because I, I built these arrows and I wanted to try them out. And so, so I you figured, shot a bison with the arrows. Yeah. Oh. So I, and I ended up shooting him at like five yards. Um, and the arrow completely passed through. He went about 50 yards and did a circle and died. You shot an exit wound with a bow. What's that? You shot a bow straight through a Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. It completely passed through him. Well engineered. Yeah. Ready, ready for the bear hunt. Well, actually no. So, that was one thing that I, I there was a broadhead that I was using, and that's the actually cutting tip of the of the of the arrow that I had. It was a, it was one that I had never really put to use before. I shot some deer and things like that before this, um, but never used this head. And it has basically it's a two bladed broadhead with two little, what they call bleeder blades that make an X, but. Uh, one of those hit a rib on the way out or on the way in, and uh, it basically made like a cut in that bison. So he bled like crazy, but there was maybe that much blood that ended up on the ground. And when you're archery hunting, that's not what you really want. You want to be able to. You want to track to. Follow. You want to be able to trail it. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean that's kind of the the premise of the whole thing. But it it did its job, and he bled out and in very short order and i mean went 50 yards and he was literally dead within about 10 seconds that's so. that's the way you want absolutely i mean it's be done fast yeah and so i mean and and it's incredible with when you're using people don't think oh you're just you know it's it's archery it's you know it's just an arrow well it's that, it, it's old school it's primitive you have to be within near touching distance of the animal to shoot it yeah, but with the equipment we have now, it's so advanced. Like like 60, 70, 80 yard shots are not unheard of. You you can do them. The thing is is that there's a lot of factors that come into play. Wind, stuff in between you and your target. Yes. Um and especially when you're out in nature, all sorts of things can happen. So, you know, me personally, even as being a rifle hunter, I, being an archer too, I still want to get in as close as I can because as much as I don't, dis, you know, I don't despise people long range shooting and, and I'd lo- I love the knowledge and all of the, all the premise behind it. But really for me as a hunter, 
I like knowing that I got inside that animal's personal space and actually I fooled him. Like I won in his house. I went and slept in his bed while he was in the front room. So, you know, that's kind of... I just imagine the three know. bears, the mama bear, the papa bear, and the baby bear, and Aaron just, like, creeps up in their Aaron cottage bear. and jumps in the bed. Right. Yeah. No. Gotcha. But, I mean, but, but, that, but that's kind of the premise, um, because for me, they're so turned on. As you've seen, you know, when we were, when we were out there, they, they know what they're looking for. They know where to be. They know kind of where not to be. And they are switched. They knew on. we were there. Oh, absolutely. They knew it, and they were constantly on the prowl. Like that, the first we did that like one mile uphill hike because we had those like the little small herd that was uh-huh. basically right by the the place we were staying. They saw us and they were gone. They were gone. Yeah, they weren't having that. Yeah, you got to sneak and sneak and sneak, and so that's really what hunting is about. As as you know, Alan's like hunting's. W- w- Alan, what did you say to me the first time I went hunting? Hunting is. Uh, oh, they don't call it hunting. Or they don't call it catching. They, they call, call it hunting. Yeah, hunting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, I mean, back to the the bear. When I when we went up there, I you know I kind of did my research and you know did that buffalo hunt, and basically the only thing I changed was the broadhead. So I went to a G five Montec, which was a three blade cut on contact. As soon as that animal was getting touched with that broadhead, it was starting to cut. Okay. So, okay. So the the idea was less penetration, more destruction. No, basically it was just I wanted a hole. So with those three blades, it basically opens up three little flaps in there. There is no possibility for just that little slit knife cut in them, which that other broadhead had demonstrated with me with the buffalo. Right, because so, we want the track for yeah. to be able to follow the animal. And yeah. yeah, with a bear, I want him to bleed, you know, yeah. and, or any animal, just because that's how they expire. That's how they're going to expire quickly. So, um, and... Can we talk about that a little but, bit? Well, y- the expiring quickly. What's that? Um, you, you don't... Sorry, go ahead, Alan. So the process of expiring quickly, you know, right. I think when a lot of people um, consider hunter, they're like, oh, that's, that's cruel, that's inhumane. You know, you talk about wanting to have a clean hunt and you talk about, you know, wanting to have, like, be in their house and to, you know, do it the right way. Can you explain to people how, as a bow hunter or a rifle hunter, what you're doing, what you're looking for, the shots that you're looking to take, that are going to provide you with the quickest kill and why that is important? Yeah, and two, I also want to set this out there too for everybody that has no idea what hunting or anything like that's about is, you know, I love animals. I love nature. I, if it's about anim- everything I have done in my life has revolved around animals, um, whether it be from hunting, fishing, trapping, um, I rode bulls professionally for, for 10 years. So, and all of those, even doing taxidermy, all of those come with a negative connotation because people don't want you to hurt an animal. I get that. Um, you know, as a hunter, like I, you know, I have three dogs. I, I mean, I'm definitely an animal lover. I love going and just viewing nature too. And because there's so many things just like you've seen when I've taken you, Alan, out uh, fishing and when we're out there on the ocean, there's stuff that you're just going to see out there that you'll never see sitting on your couch. No, you won't. I don't think Alan wants to go fishing with you again. He will. No, not, not, he, will. he will. Not that, in a negative that, way. That, that, hold yeah. on, hold on. I actually want to go fishing again. So as soon as the season opens up in August, if you want to go, I'm in. Well, whenever. 
So, yeah. like I said, just not the swells this time. No, it, that it's that, fine. It was like yeah. he said, it was the worst time we've ever been. And did I complain once? No, you didn't. No, that was one time you weren't a bitch. Record that. That's short. I remember Alan texting me. He goes, "Dude, it was just puke and rally, and I just did it for ten hours straight, and I just put my head down and got to work." And then I think I texted him something along the lines like, "What a savage!" Yeah, it it's was like, it "Good was, job." It, it yeah. was it was a rough day. It I mean, a like a, a, a yeah. So <laughs> I, I I commend him for not going and being in the fetal position and ending up in the in the. Uh, in the cabin there and stuff, your rotation was fish for 15 minutes hang out for 15 minutes throw up for 15 minutes rest for 15 yeah, minutes there's like repeat. a certain amount of saltines yeah. and gatorade and water i would drink and then it was like 15 minutes of feeling good 15 minutes of feeling nauseous two minutes throwing up rinse and repeat yeah. <laughs> right. oh man rough but anyway so as as far as you know the whole hunting thing and and getting you know getting close um it's it's obviously because I have a, I have a huge respect for these animals, um, especially now too. Being a taxidermist, um, this is part of the job that I never really kind of appreciated until much later. After I you know took in several thousand animals over the years, uh, after doing this for now thirty five years, shit, that's older than you guys are. But uh, anyway, it's just that I see what these animals can endure. Um, broken bones there's some pictures that i sent scott of bears um that have had abscessed teeth that has gone in the infection's gone up and you know eaten their upper palate and that bear survived and been doing well there was one i had uh, a bear that had a broken bottom jaw that was compound fractured open sore bear was still living and fat you know, so it's like stuff like that. It makes me have a a pretty high reverence for them because we're so soft. Like, it, thank God for knives and guns and you know high powered calibers that we have and that we've created because we wouldn't stand a chance against no even fight. like a yeah. even against like a hundred pound bear, pound for pound. There, like you wouldn't want to take on a twenty pound bobcat, like. You you just you would you would have a really really bad bobcat's day. vicious. No fangs, no claws. Well, period. Right, and and a feral cat is one of the meanest. A feral house cat is one of the meanest animals you'll ever come across. Um, I used to run across them out at the river when I would trap out there back in the day, and um, they were the most vicious animal, a vicious animal you'd ever come across. And those guys are 10 to 15, 20 pounds. A Not, feral house cat? Yeah. No, they're your standard house cat. No, but they're I just saying, are they, 6 to 12 pounds. Yeah, but they're, I mean. I don't know cats. That was a yeah, they're, 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 they're 10-ish, 10-ish pounds, but I mean still. Now multiply that by four. That's a bobcat, right? Uh, yeah, big, a big big bobcat's 30-ish. I mean, 30 pounds. I used to. I used to trap them a lot, and uh, so there's speak, only been a handful that I've caught that are over 30 pounds. So can we speak clearly here for people who aren't animal people? Bobcat, mountain lion, same thing? No. No? Different things? No, very different. Yeah. Uh, about a big bobcat's going to be about 30 pounds and also has a bobtail, thus the name, bobcat. Uh, they have about a four to five inch tail. Uh, mountain lion comes with about a three foot long tail and can get up to about 180 to 200 pounds. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you imagine as a fully grown man, you know, I'm 210 pounds. Wouldn't stand a chance. Fighting with no. a 200 pound cat. You'd be dead. 
That, that's like me fighting my 10-pound wiener So dog. my neighbor, you know Dave, mm-hmm. right? We also had him on. He runs the barbecue truck. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He told me he got in Utah. He, they were out hunting elk. And he got in between a mountain lion and her cub on accident. And apparently they make like this like whistling noise. It's a high-pitched little it, chirp yeah, that they make. That, it, that's it. Thank yeah. you. He said he was... He had never been so freaking scared in his life because he's in this blind and he then he starts hearing like this ticking noise behind him. And he knows because he had called his buddy. He's like, hey, I've never heard this sound before. What is that? Like, that's a sound that usually a mother mountain lion makes when it's communicating with its cub. And then he goes, then I started hurt. I'm not exactly sure what the sound was, but it was behind the blind. But long story short... He had to call and he had to basically sit there and play the waiting game. And right as this mountain lion was looking to pounce on him on the blind, two buddies showed up in a UTV that had all the bright lights on it. And so they lit the thing up with bright lights and the thing scampered away. But apparently he said he he had never been like so amped up in his life. And he said he was just like literally holding on to whatever he had. I'm not sure if it was a pistol or shotgun or whatever. Um, whatever he had, just like waiting for that fucking thing to come through the door. And if you're telling me it was 200 pounds, Jesus. So, yeah, so, the, I mean, your average one's going to be 100, 100 and Okay, let's just say pounds. 120 pounds. Still, yeah. a freaking cat is 120 pounds. I mean, most, I'd say the average human is probably that size, right? I killed one in Texas that was 120 pounds, and you wouldn't want to mess with him. When we were up in Oregon, Ben shows me a picture. That's a, that was our outfitter. And he goes, hey, Curtis, look at this. And it's his buddy just holding onto a cougar, 200-pound cougar. Just got it from behind, heads right here, up underneath the arms. And he's like, this guy's 6'2". It's as big as he is. I tell you what, being outside in the middle of the pitch dark <laughs> in Oregon, it was kind of nerve-wracking because I'm like, is one of these – cat's gonna come out of nowhere i think that picture that he showed us that was Derek wolf's cat and Derek wolf is a former nfl player i believe uh but he's a big dude he's a big and, dude and, and it was a big cat and it was, it's a big cat a but pet cat or one he killed no mountain no, lion it was a cougar it was a, I thought it was a cougar same thing mountain lion cougar same thing yeah oh, i know yeah. mike tyson has a fucking tiger but my point yeah. is, <laughs> is yeah. was this guy was this cat dead yeah, it was dead yeah, yeah okay. it was one, it was one he thank you yeah, yeah. So, so you're sitting here like some crazy NFL has a has a cougar for so a no, 200 pound pet? Like, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. No, but anyway, uh, so the back to the bear hunt because we went down and talked about a couple of different things. We actually didn't let you finish on the rabbit. I'm sorry, finish. We don't want to let you finish going down the rabbit hole because we want to come up and talk about the bear hunt. Yeah. So you changed the tips on your arrows. Yeah. We so I went to the G5 Montec uh, broadheads and uh, set off for Alaska. Went out to basically. Fly into Anchorage, fly from there to King Salmon. Um, King Salmon, you take another little plane out to a place that we call Sandy River, and it's almost to Cold Bay, which Cold Bay is the last portion on the mainland Alaska before you start out the Aleutian chain. Okay. So, uh, seen Deadliest Catch, and when they, you start going out that, that succession of islands, you get yeah. out there, Dutch Harbor, Adak Island, and um, so. Cold Bay's not very far from where I was at, and um, basically we set up our set up our camp there. 
and we could Alaska has a rule where you can't uh, fly and hunt within the same day so or I 12 hours or something so it keeps you from flying around in a plane and landing and shooting something so um so with that we basically set up our camp and went out uh to hunt the next day i had brought both a 375 uh caliber rifle and also my bow so i figured i'd give the bow a whack if i could you know get there was a place where we could find a bear and stalk one that was in bow range then I would use my bow, obviously. And if I couldn't, then I was going to use my rifle. Um, so the first day we went out, uh, located this bear. She was all alone by herself, feeding on tundra berries. So the way the prevailing wind was blowing, uh, we, I, we could have come from the beach side, but the beach side was the Bering Seaside, and there was a, about a 40-knot breeze coming off there. So pretty high winds. So they, she would have she smelled, smelled us, yeah. And that's one thing for both black and brown bears. Um, they don't have great sight and great hearing, but they have an amazing nose. I mean, yes. their nose is incredible. There's so, a, a, we were at a trap shooting uh, competition, and a guy told me, he goes, your dog will know that you're cooking something in the kitchen. The bear will know what ingredients you put in it. Yep. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's pretty phenomenal what they can smell uh, and what they can smell inside of uh, – sealed containers and all sorts of stuff so, so being upwind from a bear not a good idea yeah, you're just, <laughs> yeah. well they're just gonna run off i mean yeah. you know they, they know what humans smell like and um at that point instinct takes takes over and they just they take off running and they're not gonna stop so we we spent about an hour and a half came off that hill where we spotted that bear spent about an hour and a half it was myself my buddy ken he's a retired san jose police officer um and he had a rifle uh, our guide Ken, or our guide Phil, he had a rifle also. But I, you know, we got down there and got semi close to where the bear was at, probably within a hundred ish yards. And I gave him my back at this point here. We still had video cameras, not just phones. So I gave him the camera and I said, "Here," I said, "You know, just video this." I said, "Because I'm going to try to use my bow because she's in a good spot where we could make a good good stock on her and get close enough to where the bow would be effective." And I said, unless I said, just get the shot. I said, unless she's chewing on somebody, just film. I said, Ken, <laughs> you know, not knowing what was yeah. possibly yeah. going to happen. So Ken and I had made our way closer to the bear. Um, and mind you, she was, there was nothing around as far as any sort of vegetation. All of it was just ground cover and, and, uh, ground up volcanic rock uh, it was uh, it was on a cinder bar so um so she was eating these tundra berries and and so we had a prevailing wind that was coming at us or kind of quartering to us and about 40 yeah about 40 knots of wind so it was a pretty high wind so you don't want to shoot across that because it's just going to blow an arrow all over the place you're not going to know where it's going to end up so i could either shoot straight into it which is fine um, the only thing it may do is affect elevation and, uh, still I want her close. So, um, at the time when we made a stock, we had a Creek that we are a little Creek bed that we were walking in and it was, um, so there was about a 10 foot, 12 foot, uh, elevation difference from where the area where she was feeding at to where we were walking down 
uh, in that creek. And so we made our way to her and it was about 60 ish yards. And we popped up to the edge of the, to the creek there. And I started scanning for her founder and she was facing away from us and which I call quartering away, but she was not dead butt to us, but she had a little bit of a turn. So Mm -hmm. she was kind of a little diagonal to us. And, uh, but still, it, we'd be shooting in a crosswind and, and, and she was 60 yards away and there was no way I was going to sh- take that kind of shot. So she didn't know we were there. We, we were good. And wind was in our favor. So Phil was bringing up, had, was coming up just behind us and he's like, where's she at? And I said, well, she's right here. She's 62 yards. I said, she's quartering away. Doesn't even know we're here. And I said, so and at this point here, I had already knocked an arrow uh, in in my bow. I had one ready to fire, so that's that's what that means. Is uh, and because, like I said, I didn't know kind of really, you know, if she'd moved, get them closer, you know, what the situation was going to be. So he, after I told him where she was, he he kind of peeked up over the hill and then started scanning. Mind you, she's over here. He starts scanning and. He goes, the, he goes left to right, and she's already on the right. Yeah. Right. And so by the time he gets to where she is and picks him up and picks her up, she picks him up. And she, but she couldn't, I, I, from what I gathered, she couldn't really tell what he was. Wait, she the guide did this? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so. We're not going to bring up old runes. Continue. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, he he ducked back down real quick, and because Ken and I were you know whispering at each other and kind of making a plan because we were gonna we were gonna go up the creek a little bit more so we could actually position ourselves downwind directly downwind from her so uh, I could be shooting into it. So he he ducks back down. He's like, "Oh shit, she saw me," and I looked over my shoulder and I was like, "What do you mean she saw you?" He goes, "Yeah, no." He's like, "She stood up. She saw me." I was like, shit. I was like, we just got through spending an hour and a half getting all the way over here and, you know, walking through the tundra in Alaska is not exactly easy and things like that. So it was just like, shit. And so again, arrow knocked and everything ready to go. I said, okay, well, I want to see if she took off. And from there, I just, uh, I just started peeking up in the direction that she was at. And, um, to my surprise, she was not where she was at when we first saw her. She had now cut that distance in half and was walking right at us. And like she was on a string and no, and it was no sense of urgency, but she was coming to see what the hell that was that she saw. Yeah. Um, they are king of the jungle up there for a reason. And there's nothing, they are the apex predator. So there's nothing that's going to scare them, scare them off or anything like that. So, um, at that point there now she's at 30 yards and she's she's coming no just just walking but coming and so i ducked down quickly and i was like oh shit guys i said she's coming she's she's right here she's coming right now i said ken uh, stay here i said phil just move to my left just move so off the edge of this creek it was really there was not a whole lot that was growing along it just some low grass but there was some high pieces of grass that were sticking up and I didn't want to right where we were at there was a bunch of it and I didn't want to shoot through it um 
So I moved to my left about, oh, 10 yards. And when I did, I stood up. And at that point there, she saw me. And that's when she came. Uh, she started a full charge. And in that, I mean, thirty yards out, full charge, right at you. At that time, there she was even she was even closer. So she, twenty to twenty-five yards. Yeah. So she started that. So you got seventy-five feet max between you and this bear, and she's starting to charge at you. What happens? Yeah. So from that point there, there's no time to really do anything. So I come to full draw really quick, and as she's coming, she kind of has to come up a little bit of a hill, and then once she hits the apex of that hill she's down and I'm standing here so and here is right on the back side of the hill right back side of the hill and basically I'm in not quite in the bottom of the creek but on the edge of the bank and so she starts coming and I mean she didn't look at Ken she didn't look at Phil she she just had eyes and I'd never at that point there I'd never had an animal lock in on me look me in the eye and then just come you were dinner yeah that was it I mean yeah and so um, basically she got to the top of the hill and that's kind of where my reference point was. I was just, she gets to there and that's going to work. Releasing the arrow. Yeah. So let the arrow fly and it hit her and she made a big woof and kind of turned and like looked at me like, I still really want to just kick your ass, but that really hurt. Yeah. And so she turned and ran out across that cinder bar that she was on and we watched her the whole way. And she ran out there about 200 yards, did that in about 30 seconds, sat down, and then fell down and, and died. Okay, so hold and on. So hold on. This thing ran 200 yards in 30 seconds. So it ran with 100 an arrow, yards in 15 seconds with an arrow in it. With an arrow How straight through its heart. How much time transpired between the time you realized it was 30 yards in front of you and you released that arrow? 20 seconds? Half a minute? 30? I mean, at the most? So when she starts charging, how quickly did that gap close then? Was that Real like, quick, because the thing was is like, that at first, and, it, and you can kind of see it in the video if you, if you, it's on my Instagram. But uh, your your Instagram handle is uh, underscore Aaron Hunts underscore I believe. Yeah, underscore A A R O N H U N T S underscore. And there's so, a, the the bear hunt video is on there. Yeah. So basically, as she's coming up that hill, all I can see as I'm seeing her, I'm seeing. You know, or in the video where you see it, because I have clear view of her. You see basically ears, head, neck, chest, bear. And as soon as I got to bear, center of her chest. So I had a, at that point there, I was shooting a 28 inch air, uh, long arrow, and there was that that arrow hit her right in the center of the sternum, and it went through her sternum, through her heart diaphragm liver and into her stomach and so there was 24 inches of it in her and four inches of it sticking out and she still ran 200 yards and so this is the common misconception that i think people have with bears and i've heard stories and i think you know you were the one that was telling me this they have literally people people have literally shot a bear in the heart with a shotgun it's got no heart, and it's still got 30 seconds left of just destroying whatever it wants to destroy in those seconds. If it wants to, yeah. I mean, there's animals in Africa that I've seen and heard stories of uh, Cape Buffalo, leopards, lions that have been shot multiple times, you know, with high-caliber rifles in the right spot, and they're running off of nothing but adrenaline. And their their job before they go is to take 
something with them and it might be you so but um don't be lunch yeah and yeah. so i mean with with that i mean in during that hunt or during that whole little episode um mind you i had 40 knots of wind in my ears and so it was very windy and everything got really very quiet, quiet very quiet and it also went down to like almost a tunnel vision and everything was in slow motion so and then as soon as shot was released bear turned and ran it was like somebody sped the tape up sound came back everything was back to normal again and that's when kind of and the ad- adrenaline I, dump came and yeah. the bear claws on the forearms are because of that hunt oh uh, yeah so this the, i mean both of those are they're they're just kind of i don't have any tattoos that don't mean something and yeah. basically they're just kind of reminders when things are shitty it could be a lot shittier yeah i could have yeah. been pretty shitty yeah, could have been much you yeah. could have been a bear shit. I could, that's kind of <laughs> well, what I was getting at. Yeah. So uh, now I, the, I, the video is crazy. I mean, it's basically you know 2005 tape cam recorder, but it's good enough for you to GoPro, see. Yeah. No, no, no yeah. this, this is 2005. Before, this before, before, before. Uh, you can actually see how close it was and the shot that you put through. I mean, it's. I mean, if you want to talk about being steady in in a moment, you need to be steady. That video described the steadiness to a degree that was very much what you needed at the time. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, it wasn't anything that I'd ever want to have happen again, really. I mean, I, would I love to go shoot another brown bear with a bow? Absolutely, just because, like, that's a leveling. Just that basically levels the playing field for sure. Yeah. I mean, not that it's, not it's, not that a rifle doesn't. It's probably disadvantage. You. Oh for sure but i mean yeah. but at the same time too it can be done but you can also you you also got to be prepared to possibly lose your life too yeah it's a very primal way of getting your food like yeah. it's kill or be killed or in yeah. your case literally kill or you're about to be killed uh right. yeah so that it, that's a fascinating story i'm really glad you got the opportunity to share it i would encourage anybody out there that's listening look you up on instagram add yeah. you as a friend check out the video that you have because it's it's just freaking sweet i've probably watched it five or six times we talked you talked about a couple of things um in regards to like the politics of hunting and and how hunting is done so i wanted you to explain the seasons of hunting so there's obviously uh fall winter bow hunting rifle hunting there's waterfowl there's actually big game there's a variety of different concepts in there could you just kind of give people a quick education for a couple of minutes about the various types of seasons? Yeah. So, I mean, well, luckily for me and anybody else who's into hunting and depending on when you want to go, um, there's hunting year round that can be done, whether it be uh, all you have to do is want to travel. So if you want to go to the Southern Hemisphere, it's winter down there. So guess what? You can go to New Zealand, you can go to Africa, um, South America, you can go to a lot of places, and if and you're do that. if you're going grocery shopping, you're probably not going to go to those places. But no. if you're if you're yeah, trophy it, hunting, yeah, and you know, but still, it's a great adventure. It's it's and it's also too like a, a very common misconception, and people do uh, make this mistake all the time, and they confuse poaching with hunting. Um, so when it comes to that, you know, when I'm over there, I've gone to Africa a few different times, and they waste nothing. I mean, so as, as as being the trophy hunter, um, you know, yeah, I can only bring back any hide, horn, antler, bone that I 
and it all has to be salt dried. It, I mean, even down to the crate that it comes back into, it has to be approved wood. Like it can't have any bark on it. I mean, the USDA and our customs are very strict on all of that stuff. That's why we don't have hoof and mouth here. That's why we don't have any of those communicable diseases that we, that other countries, third world countries have and then pass back and forth because they have loose borders and ports of entry and things. So, um, I think Alan had a question about that. Yeah, yeah. What's that? So I brought this up on a couple episodes that we've had okay. <clears throat> and the concept about hunting had came up and I, and I told the story about how you had gotten a draft because mm-hmm. I remember asking you this Yeah, because there's a local gun club here. We're all members part of when you walk in Western wildlife taxidermy, that's your taxidermy company, right? There's that big giraffe. And I literally asked him like, so how do you, how do you shoot a giraffe? Like what is the process for this? And I remember you kind of looked at me and you were like, I actually, I, I like this question, but that wasn't a giraffe you would want to eat. And I was like, what do you mean? And you're like, the only way we were able to shoot that giraffe is because that was a diseased giraffe. And they want you to remove those out of the population because of, like, for example, what you just said, right? The hoof and, what did you say, hoof and mouth? Hoof and mouth disease, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it it was uh, protecting the species as a whole instead of, like you said, you know, the poachers or trophy hunters or people who aren't doing these things, like, or who are doing these things with malicious intent, right? It seems that, like that would be the poachers, not the trophy hunters. Yeah, because because yeah. poachers are basically just taking parts of an animal, uh, and or they're just taking an animal because they're selling it for market meat, yeah. um, and they're taking it out of season without any sort of regulation or anything like that. And or like in the case of elephant rhino, they're taking ivory? just just the ivory or just the tusk off a of rhino, um, just for some aphrodisiac medicinal purposes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like shark fin soup. Well, right. So, but like, so to kind of correct you on, on what you just said about with the giraffe. So, um, the giraffes can be legally hunted all over Africa. I mean, it's not a, it's not a thing. It's, I mean, one thing that the Africans, um, are incredibly good at is raising game and managing it. Um, so why do you think that is? They raise game like we raise cows. I mean, and, and like I said, they're, they're really sharp in doing it. Um, they've brought over Kiwis from, you know, uh, it's New Zealand and and game capture experts that know how to capture things. It was one of the things that when I was younger, I watched the, there was a, a, an old show on as well before your time. It was, uh, called wild kingdom. And, this guy Marlon Perkins and him his sidekick they'd go over Af- to Africa and they're chasing down rhinos and all the stuff like that. So it, that was one of the things. As a form really, of trapping, it was a form of relocation. Yeah. Um, you know that's why the white rhino, the black rhino, you can actually hunt them still because of actually hunters because the African what, cowboys have done a good job managing the Sahara. Well, yeah. that and two, like the money that gets dumped into there from from taking one animal, it allows that landowner to go buy, you know, other animals from different herds. So now he diversifies his herd. Yes. And they they're protected. The gene the gene pool's good. The gene pool's good. His animals are protected because he also has game guards like game wardens that we have here yeah. that are patrolling his property keeping 
either uh, poachers. His poachers out or any un- unwanted people out. Um, or potentially unwanted predators. Um, yeah. in, in that case, there's not a whole lot that's going to, you know, prey on them unless they're so, sick or weak or something like that. So the the economy, I asked the season's question. Yeah. I, I, I want to follow up with the economy of hunting because no, that's but a like big to, piece. But yeah. to stay on the season portion of it, like our in California, our coastal deer season, our archery deer season started Saturday, last okay. Saturday. Like we start really early here. Mm-hmm. But so our our – our coastal season starts earlier and ends earlier. Our our mountain season in the Sierras starts a little bit later. Those deer are on little different antler growth cycles just because of their the climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they shed their antlers every year. Yes. And yes. so horns that are kept except for in pronghorn antelope. Pronghorn antelope uh, will actually shed that horn. Uh, not in all places, but they do uh, and, and can and will. So... Um, you know the the seasons are are generally in the fall um, for say bull or buck antelope or uh, animals. So whether it's deer, antelope, um, sheep, um, elk, any of those are usually done in the fall from about August to November, December. After that, is that they, rifle and bow, or are they split yeah. up? Um, and also it depends on if it's. Uh, uh, depends on the tag because the tag can designate what what you're actually able to shoot the animal with it may be an archery only tag and so you have to use archery equipment only so let's use area. the state of california as an example and and right. give people a description of of tags so you have to apply yeah. to shoot an animal which is not a guarantee that you get the opportunity to shoot an animal no and so w- there are some units in california that are a general type zone a couple of them are fairly local and you know those are kind of an over-the-counter you're you can buy those tags there's a large number of those tags and but those types of tags are, are what deer, deer tags deer tags yeah so when it comes to our antelope sheep or elk california is a very unique place in the fact that we're the only place in the world that has all three elk species or subspecies so there's tule elk which is the smallest one um, you have a Rocky Mountain elk, which is kind of the mid mid level size size one, which you and I shot and hunted up in Oregon. Yeah. And then they have the Roosevelt elk too, and that's the biggest one. And they are big. Those yeah. guys, some of those those boys are massive. Those yeah. bulls, I've seen some photos recently. I'm like, oh, yeah, like Jesus. a like a hind quarter kind of rem- like the the hind end of them almost resembles like a, a horse. I mean, they're they're huge. Yeah, so I mean, if you were doing a trophy hunt, what would you think you'd get off of one of those bulls? Three, four hundred pounds. Oh, you, 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 a grocery hunt, not trophy hunt. No, 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 a trophy. You, you, no, if you're hunting, if you're a, hunting a bull, States, if you're, you're hunting, you're, if you're hunting a bull, it, it, and for horns, yeah, for antlers, you're, you're getting and, meat too. Yeah, dude. you're getting meat. So, and you can definitely bring that back and and feed the family with that one. And yeah. you're probably you're probably going to get, yeah, three to four hundred pounds solidly. So yeah. the the tags. Um, so the tags here in California, we run on a point system, but the. Uh, so every year you apply, you get a point. And if you draw, they they take your points away, and then you start back to zero. So every year I've drawn a deer tag, I may have had four or five or eight points, whatever, and then after I draw it, boom, I'm down to zero again. I kind of start accruing points again. 
so like with sheep right now i am i'm a max point holder right there and that's the only animal i haven't drawn here in california and i'm at 22 so that's 22 years consecutively that i've put in for Attack. with with the point system in place but there was years before that i've been putting in since i was 16 Okay, I'm 50. so <laughs> let's talk about the Grand Slam for a second because this is like a, it's not a hidden part of hunting, but it's just not if you're not in the hunting ether and ecosystem, you're not going to know about this. So yeah. the sheep aspect of hunting, then this is kind of going into the economics after this. Explain to people what the Grand Slam is and okay. why the tag that you were just describing that you put in for 22 years, why it's so hard to get. Yeah, so. A Grand Slam of sheep is basically your four North American wild sheep that live in North America. And that is the desert bighorn, the Rocky Mountain bighorn, the doll sheep, which is uh, a thin horn sheep, and then there's a uh, stone sheep, and then it's also another thin horn sheep. And if you want to get all, if you want to shoot all four of these animals, what does it take, both time wise, approach wise, if you want to go private, and cost wise? shoot these things hmm well yeah if if you want it probably i i've known guys that have put in and drawn uh at different raffles and have drawn a couple of them that way because their odds are better because a, um, a state will do a fundraiser for they'll a have a fundraiser tag. yeah sometimes they'll what they'll do is they'll usually auction that tag off and so what would a winning bid be so Montana Montana's tag uh, up in the Missouri breaks is usually the tag that usually will bring the most money. It's brought upwards of $700,000. Holy crap. And this yeah. is the economics of hunting that I learned about when I went on a hunt with him. I, this is a hidden form of racing. Yeah. So so that's just one. And so the tag is good. That just gives you the tag. That does not guarantee you anything that gives it, you the right to the right to shoot the animal right. but it doesn't give you the outfitter it does not give you any like you still what have is to an, go hire, what is an you, outfitter so Just, you still have to, that's your guide yeah. so you have, still have to go hire a guide you still have to do you know you still have to get there you there's a lot that goes into it aaron well, aaron can i pull up a picture right now with maybe sort of as an example so that's my that's my mountain goat holy that Dude, was in, that, that, was in huge. that was in Kodiak Island. That's really wow. rare and exclusive, right? And that's like a very um, hard... it's a, it's a tough animal. Like that one there, I Alaska has a little bit better draw odds. It's about a thirty three percent. I actually drew it on my first time applying, so I lucked Stud. out. And yeah. um, and that's one of the four in the Grand Slam. Uh, no, that's just a goat. So yeah, the 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 sheep are they're. Their Latin name comes from Ovis, so that's their that's their genus. Well, so the the goats, they're Capra, and they'll have that in all of their names. But uh, but yeah, so that goat hunt was pretty special to me, just because. So I was married and had and had gone had a hunt booked for a mountain goat. The year I got divorced, had to cancel the trip. So eight years later, I went and did that trip. And yeah, it was a it was a pretty big one for me just because it was just like it was kind of a culmination of uh, of always wanting to go and do one and a finally serendipitous. Getting it. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, for sure. So it, is so, it is it the the meat, the trophy, or both? So what as far as 
with the goat or for yeah. the sheep? Well, well, the sheep and the goat, you know, are those in the same category for the the triple crown? The, the the grand slam. The so grand slam? no, so there's grand slam. Uh, there's grand slams of sheep. There's so the one that Curtis mentioned was the four North American sheep. There's also a world grand slam of sheep that com- encompasses Asia. Um, you know, North America and, and like all, all parts of the world at that point. Um, Cause in Asia, there's a ton of sheep over there. So, so I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking like China, which is close to hunting now, but I'm talking like Mongolia, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, um, Azerbaijan. You start going to even in Kamchatka in uh, Russia, in Siberia, yeah. there's snow sheep over there. Um, you you run into Nepal and there's blue sheep, uh, Himalayan tar. There's so all is this the trophy hunting thing or is this the meat? You, you're not getting meat. If you, you the only eat meat you will get at that point there is meat that you're going to eat and consume while you're there. But yeah. it was usually because yeah, you it's, can't bring it back to the states. Yeah, you'll you'll be giving that to either the locals. locals. Yeah, the the, so, the locals there are going to use the meat. It's not going to waste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there was another. Uh, I just want to wrap up because there were a couple points that we had talked about. It's the same thing in Africa when you said, "Hey, you know, you yeah. basically you got to put it in the right crate." You know, the USDA is really tough. That's why we don't have yeah. hoof and mouth, all that other stuff. But the, the locals, they get all the meat and everything else, and they're really good about not wasting anything. That is in Africa, but is that also in many of the other places that you've hunted too as well? Yeah, I mean. You know, we're, we're so spoiled here because we have a Safeway or a Rayleigh's on every street corner just about. Um, you go to Africa, and it's a very protein-poor country. And going back to kind of the giraffe situation, so that, what you were saying there wasn't entirely correct. So what... Then correct me because I heard it from you. Well, no. <laughs> well, no. You, you misremembered. It's all right. <laughs> but, um, so we... <laughs> So I actually went and shot that bull there because what happened is the the tick population on that gentleman's property was super high. Like he had an infestation of them. What it was causing is they these he started with twenty five giraffe that were on this property that he, that he put on there um, because like I said they'll buy and sell animals like crazy and yes you can buy giraffe. So while uh, he started with twenty five when I was there he was down to three. And what happens is these ticks, they were they bite them and then they give them a parasite. And what it was doing, it was causing congestive heart failure in these in these giraffes. And a and in a giraffe, if everybody kind of has a slight bit of common sense, when it takes a pretty good pump to pump that blood up that neck to their head to keep them operational. So their heart's a pretty important organ in their body. So when you start messing with that heart, um, the ticks were were giving the the giraffes what they'd call heart water. And it was just basically... Uh, like congenitive heart failure. Yeah, and so it was basically filling the sac up around the heart with fluid and causing that. So he had lost a bunch of them. Um, he basically was selling the last few of them off to basically be able to get them off the property and at least make something off of them. The, the meat was fine because he's... He sold all of the meat that we that we took. They butchered it up, put went right into a cold box, and they were selling it. And so he was able to do that. But otherwise, if they die out in the middle of, of his ranch, and his ranch was huge. I mean, you're talking 25,000 acres. 
I mean, you're not going to get to every square inch of that in a day. And by the no. time something dies, the only way you're going to know it died is because of vultures are circling. Yeah, the so, only people eating are the vultures. Yeah, yep. and so he so he loses double on that then, you know, because he, he there was nothing that he gained out of it's it. Have you tasted? Have you tasted giraffe? Uh, I yeah. So we didn't get we didn't eat any of that one. But w- most of the animals that we uh, that we hunted over there, we definitely had either that night or a couple nights afterwards and there's yeah a ton of it's really what's good. your favorite animal uh prob- probably cow elk or axis deer cow elk or axis deer yeah axis deer are probably one of my favorite and you it doesn't matter what you you can shoot the biggest gnarliest buck in the world and they're still fork tender and so mild my ex-wife would she'd kind of turn her nose at a deer steak she'd fight you for an axis steak and oh. basically, that was on a no, nobody gets that. You're not giving that to anybody type policy. That's, that's okay. legit. So let's talk about this a little real quick. One, thank you for correcting me on the tick. I knew it was, you know, some, yeah. some issue, you know, was, yeah. was why you got it. Like I said, you uh, misremembered. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Slightly. yeah, hold on uh, a tick, Alan. Why is cow elk better than bull elk <laughs> in the situation that you just brought up when you said my favorite meat is, you know, cow elk, the different genders? How does that change the taste of the meat for you? Um, to some people it does. I mean, I don't know. I've, I haven't eaten a bad elk period. I mean, some, I personally, and I think I, I think I've made Curtis a believer of this. It is how they are taken care of. I mean, our, from the time you shoot them or with whatever you're shooting them with to the time you get them quartered out and in a freezer, that period is really important. And that's how you treat the animal. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when, I took Curtis and, you know, um, Curtis did amazingly well for a first timer who, you know, and, and made an incredible shot. And, but we had that animal back into a truck hung up. Uh, it was for one, we had it field dressed, which was basically removing all of the, the internal organs. Cause that gets a lot of the heat off of the, out of the animal cause heat and moisture are going to cause spoilage. And, there's a lot of moisture in an animal and you so you're not going to prevent that so you need to get them cool as fast as possible so that's what we did and it was 20 below that day it was exceptionally cold um we were so, we were more worried about it being frozen before we got it completely butchered apart yeah and actually when we were done there was the skin was actually fr- starting to freeze yes and so um we you know it's about as fresh as you can get it. Yeah, it's it's yeah. super. It's I mean th- those animals we take really good care of them just because for one I and especially in my business I see so many different hunters and they'll roll up to shop and they'll you know they've got their their deer wrapped in a you know blue tarp stuck in you know laying on the on the uh, trailer on the on the back of their truck or whatever and bringing it home and then they wonder why yeah my wife and my my kids they they just don't like what i what i you know the deer and elk i shoot i said it probably has a lot to do with how you treat them i mean it's like would you go to costco and and go buy all those ribeyes or tri-tips and then go throw them in the bed of your truck in the hot bed of your truck and then drive home no for 12 hours or 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 longer or whatever no and so basically i mean Again, it boils right back down to the connection to my food and what we're going to do with it, and and why, you know, like when we have our little so- guys, when we have our little softball cookouts and stuff like that. Yeah. Why everybody loves the meat that I bring because 
I take care of it. And it's because Aaron really takes care of his meat. Exactly. Aaron it, it, beats his meat. But anyway, I, I'm uh, not. I'm not scared of the animals in your house. And if I ever wanted to rob you, I wouldn't take your money. I'd just take what's in your freezer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> with that, which said, I'll never do, by the way. You know, like you yeah, said, the guy right. threw, threw it in the tarp in the back of the truck and everything else. You yeah. guys, when you went hunting, you had a generator in the back of the truck, a freezer, everything else. Obviously, it was already freezing. So, you know, that was the benefit of. But that's that's a really good point because, like, when you and I have gone fishing, you know, uh, those salmon, they're gutted. They're prepped, everything right there, and then they go in an ice chest, and they're straight on ice, and they go straight home. I mean, yep. that was probably about the most comfortable I've ever felt uh, having sushi and making sushi in my life. You know, because we flash freeze it, obviously, and I think Make, it was like a making day your or, own sushi. A day, yeah, a day or two later, yeah. you know, we made that, and it was it was awesome. And that's to this day the best salmon I've ever had. Well, and, and and the other thing is too. So with you know, uh, my grandfather, my dad, they made me an incredible fish knob. Um, I, I don't buy, I don't order fish in a restaurant. I did cause I don't know where it came from. How the only place I will obviously is sushi restaurant, you know, having sashimi or, or sushi cause it has, there has to be a certain level of freshness and for, you know, for it to be there yeah. at that point. When Makuni's so, got some King salmon or something on there. Yeah. I mean, but menu. still yeah. for me, there is nothing that beats a spring time ocean run krill fed salmon because he's been eating little shrimp and they just gorge themselves on it and it's a very high protein rich diet that fish is so oily and so just i mean it is so good it is the absolute best fish you will ever have that's a trip we need to book we need to get crazy i'm telling i'm telling you the fish when you pull them out of the water and you beat it with a club and then you pick that thing up like (laughs) it is just it doesn't feel like a fish because when you like movies or you're freshwater fishing, like you pick a fish up and it's kind of slimy or whatever else that fish, it just looks so fucking healthy. Everything about it smells good. It's in the salt water. So it's kind of got like this briny scent to it. Yeah. And you just look at it and the whole thing from, you know, mouth to tail just looks incredibly healthy. And then, you know, I went this past time and I, I did the fishing hole, which is a freshwater one, and the, the salmon don't look like that. But that one was just a different experience, you know, for me fishing, largely because you were having to reel it versus, you know, uh, trawling, right? Trolling, yeah. Yeah, trawling. Thank you. Um, and, you know, that, that that was a workout. You know, I had to reel one in for 10, 12 minutes, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it was a 32-pounder. But when you pull that thing up, you're like, yeah, this isn't an ocean fish. Yeah, and the, yeah, in the in – the, uh and the freshwater is when they're they're basically going to die. They're going to spawn yeah. and die. Yeah. So I mean, like that fish there, I don't even eat them. I, yeah. I won't smoke them. I won't nothing. Like it, I'd catch them, release them, whatever. But that's not my fish. I'm gonna yeah. eat. I there, there's two things that have really one established my opinion for I, I'd like to go, start going fishing more, but I only want to be out in the sea fishing. And the reason for right. that is we had Doris Malakitas on, and she was talking about. Uh, ocean plasma and and not the ocean, ocean plasma. I'm sorry, the she's ocean talking solution. about the the law of just just, um, just hold on. But either it was either ocean plasma or the ocean solution. It was the law of consistency. Yes, with with the ocean. The ocean will always clean itself. Exactly. Yeah, and and, 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 and the mercury levels and stuff like that. That's it, it. Will flush that out. I'm really glad you said that. So, yeah. with the heavy metal toxicity, when you get into the deeper parts of the ocean, the ocean water keeps itself clean, and that's what all those fish are in. Doris had mentioned, hey, she talked to some guy, the guy who's at a harbor, and he asked 
the guys that were doing a bunch of fishing, have you ever seen a sick fish? And he said, no, never seen a sick fish. And he's been doing this for 40 years. And then she talked about this ocean plasma and a, it's a whole segment. I'm not going tr- to, sure. bu- I'm going to butcher it cause I don't know it well Hold enough, on, but me, I'm not done yet yeah. with RFK with, with junior. He was talking about how in the fresh creeks he used to go fishing as a kid and now he can't go fishing in those in the freshwater areas because the heavy metal toxicity from let's just say it's cement processing plants or whatnot. Those fish do not have the same nutrient profile as they used to have 50, 60, 70 years ago because of the pollution in the rivers. So if you can go to the place where the water's the cleanest, that's going to give you the best product. Yeah, like when I was in when I was in Mongolia, um, there's a river that runs through well, kind of the edge of the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. Anything downstream of there, that that river was basically dead. Yeah, the because, dead river. Because so what they they have a lot of tanneries there for a lot of nomadic goat herding and things like that. So, but they were still on the on the whole formula of using heavy metals, chromium based tanning solutions it would get dumped back into the river. So they had, they were actually working with some companies from Holland for water for purification and things like it to clean a lot of that up. Upstream of that is, was fine. But, uh, you know, so yeah, it's definitely a big deal. And the specific comment that he had was on the Hudson, uh, RFK said he, you know, he was an environmental lawyer, lawyer, and he was suing all these companies and everything else, um, who are polluting into the Hudson. And now the Hudson is, uh, one of the most biodiverse um, rivers in North America. And and what he was saying, like you were, you were talking about, was the law of consistency with the ocean, how it basically cleans itself. And the point that he made was, uh, it, it was it Rene Quinton or somebody that Doris was talking about, which Rene basically Quinton, said, I think that's actually hey, his name. How, how, or have you ever seen a sick fish in the ocean? And the, the ocean fishermen were like, no. And they pretty much said, like, there's really no age in the ocean because everything in terms of all the trace elements are uh, proportionate with the law of consistency versus when you go into fresh water, that's when you would start to see those fish that would have cancer and all these other issues, biological issues, because uh, basically the law of consistency had been broken with the bioavailability of uh, micro uh, trace elements. When fish die deep in the ocean, they just kind of turn belly up and they go and they float to the top, but they don't die because of cancer and things like that. They just died because that was the end of their lifespan. Uh, well, not necessarily. Sometimes, I mean, no, 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 so, no. I, I, I was quoting Doris Moakitis, who was on the show a few weeks back. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. she said that basically the cell age was the same as the cell age on uh, younger fish, even if that fish was near its uh, gestational end of life. No, 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 that's wrong. Gestation, wrong <laughs> word. Uh, uh, end of life. Yeah, end yeah. of life, right? And that's what she was talking about. And then she also brought up how... Uh, the whale, there was a mother whale and a baby whale that had died, and then they had taken uh, something out of their brain, and then they had tested it, and they basically said, like, oh, the, like, the, like the cellular aspects of these in the age is exactly the same. I thought she said gallbladder. Something like yeah. that. It was yeah. all I know it was, it was an a organ. portion of it an organ. It was an organ. Yeah. 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 So, no, but, but a lot of those things, like when in, in the ocean, I mean, there's very cyclical things in there that come up, you know, when you have... Uh, red tides, high plankton blooms and, and, and stuff, or high algae blooms uh, and that will cause toxicity in, say, like that's, crabs that's and things like toxicity that. toxicity of the water killing the fish, but not the actual fish dying of an issue with the fish itself and the water's perfect. Uh, yeah, but still, like, you, I mean, they can, they can be, I've seen them 
they're essentially getting born with they're getting deformities and things like that yeah yeah Yeah. um or they pick up or they're not even you know picking uh, being asphyxiated they're just basically picking up the toxins and retaining them until the water kind of cleans out of that algae bloom goes down and then you know they kind of everything Maybe they, 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 flush, they they still flush out and you know everything's fine again okay. there's certain months where so we got a couple other topics here really you have uh bull riding is something in in your career you know the the pba pbr pbr uh i'm not a cowboy uh that's one segment there's I really want to dive into the taxidermy side of, of your life yeah. and your business and then really get into the trophy room design and talk about some of the economics of taxidermy and trophy room design because there is so much money in hunting taxidermy and trophy room design that I was completely shocked yeah. with how yeah. that world works. And then uh, before we hop into that, if you could change the regulation for hunting and game management in California, how would you do that? Oh man, where can I start? Do you have another three episodes? Because I mean, rattle them off. Uh, no, it's just it, it, our it, our fi- our fish and game department, unfortunately, has been kind of taken over the the proverbial fox is in the hen house, and where you have animal rights activist groups that have you know, or people with a little bit more liberal, you know, values than don't want hunting will basically hold back on us having more seasons like right now. So, uh, so what would you do for, what would you change for big game hunting, waterfowl, and then let's just say like fishing? So for big game hunting, for one, I definitely uh, bring back trapping, uh, bring back uh, hound hunting for bears and bobcats and and even have a, a spring season for bear hunting for us. We have a very, very healthy population of bears. And back to when I was telling you about, we were hitting that quota, it was 1,850 bears uh, when we were running them with hounds and we were hitting that pretty consistently, pretty, pretty consistently yeah. year in and year out. And then they took it away and it dropped dramatically. And so then the antis... Uh, animal rights activist groups kind of came at fish and game and said we want to stop this this hunt because you know you're not even taking you know your quota now and and you know there's a less population which wasn't true uh you basically took the ability well you took you took one of your you took one of your most valuable tools and one one of your most highly effective tools in hunting bears out of the equation so it would and basically well so right now with the way uh in my business and how i see it the lion's share of our uh, of our bears get killed within the deer season so by accident circumstance guys are out deer hunting see a bear shoot it if they have a bear tag in their in their pocket so that's that's what's happening there after the deer season is pretty much over we we see a pretty steep decline in bears that come into the shop. Just it's kind of the way there's less people out in the woods at that point. So when, that's that's where that's where you're seeing the drop off, and it's just not as effective as being able to run them with dogs. Okay, go ahead, Gers. Uh, like fishing and then waterfowl. Would you change anything in those two areas? Um, fishing. That's a whole other thing too because. Uh, there's they 
they started a lot of these protected marine areas that we can't fish that we used to be able to fish. Um, a lot of the crabbing closures coincide with whale migrations and all this kind of stuff now. And it's, there's a lot of that stuff that, you know, um, it, it is strictly political. I, and, and so I, I don't know. That, I, I think the fishing one's probably the harder one because com- you have commercial fishing, which is really doing a lot of destructive things versus line, line fishing. Sure. Um, but it, like a good thing this year, um, in the Bay, they were having, they've had a tremendous California halibut season. Um, the limit was three and basically what they've done with those guys is they cut the limit back to two because it was, they were just, they were catching limits every day and they don't want to deplete the the resource and it'd be crappy next year for years to come. So they yeah. actually so, made the regulation during the middle of the season, said, hey, we're going to drop the limit back to two, two still enough fish and you know, and people are still hitting too. So oh yeah, for sure. they're, they're, hold on, two hold a on. day, two a day, yeah. 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 And then, and then there's usually a possession limit. It's usually twice the daily bag limit. So if you get, you can have usually four in possession, two per day. So when you say four you, in possession, you so that means you can only do a two day trip. Yeah, or you need to eat some. Okay. So it, you, it's either those four in possession, or you need to start consuming. So you and five buddies go out, and you're the only good fisher, and your four buddies suck, and so you can continue fishing because everybody's got to eat. Well, on a on <laughs> on a on a yeah, boat, you can catch them, but they're technically they would go to the buddy, and so oh, on a on a party boat like yeah. Alan and I went on, they have a boat limit. So if I'm the only one catching fish, which you know can happen, and then basically I I can hand I can give you You're fish just cash at, and fish for everybody. Yeah, I can, I, I can I can give you fish at the end of the day. One of my whatever. fish. There you go. I'm puking. Aaron goes, dude, you got one on the reel. He literally gets the line, runs it over to me. I get it. We take it to the back of the boat, right? Because you got to get it under uh, under or over everybody's lines, right? Yeah. Everybody's got to pull their reels in. And then I'm reeling the thing in, and thank goodness it wasn't that big because as soon as that thing got up and in the net, dude, I was like, take this. Yeah. <laughs> Savage. Savage. You would, you, uh, I wish you would have just been reeling in like, wow, and just kept reeling at the same time. No, I've sweet. watched it happen. Not, yeah. well, not with Alan, but I mean, I, I've watched it I was happen. at that so, point so, where it took everything out of me when it happened, so I didn't want to have to then buy a reel. Yeah, that's true. Those things are expensive. Yeah. Uh, so, so with waterfowl, I mean yeah. – we have a very high pintail uh, population on our flyway, uh, probably better than anywhere in the world. It's a species of duck. I mean, I would raise up that bag limit to, you know, probably two or three, probably to two. It's at, so, it's at one right now, and it's it it's sounds kind of like, ridiculous. It sounds like active moderation really kind of needs to be the solution when you look at on an annualized basis. Are people doing enough of a certain activity? And if they're doing enough of a certain activity – are they doing enough of a certain activity successfully? And then kind of having moderation of like, we should promote the ability to kill more of a certain animal or to take more of a certain fish or reel some of that back, not from a fishing context, but like, like you said, maybe it wasn't the right time for them to do that, but go from three to two or, Hey, if you allow the duck people, I'm sorry. Yeah. The the waterfowl to get shot for two or three years and that population kind of normalizes, then you bring the numbers back down. That active management seems like that's the missing piece. Well, and not in all places. It's basically what it, what it boils down to is sustainable use. So, you know, you don't want to, 
mother mother nature's a bitch and she doesn't care what you know you do i do or what she's going to do her thing right and like where we were at when we were hunting those cow elk those were depredation tags and when that was there was a lot of them and there was a lot of elk and so the premise behind that is is to get those numbers down in line with what the habitat can support and because what happens there is you get diseases that mother nature has mange distemper starvation any of those that when they can't find what they need to survive out there and you know um it's a tough life she can kill off you know uh, an entire herd an entire species in an area for a long time if not for good and and and, you know when you get any sort of disease or things like that come through yeah and it's it where the hunter, you know, we come in there and we shoot one or and shoot a couple and it's a pretty quick death and, you know, away we go. If you get, if you're a big game animal like that and you're a deer or an elk or a moose and say you get mange, which is a mite and causes you to lose your hair in the middle of winter. Dead. Yeah, slowly. Yeah. So... I mean, people people don't look at that look at that part and their their blanket answer, especially when if they don't know, because when, back when I was in high school, I had a one teacher who's my bio, my high school biology teacher, and he'd let me teach the class for a day, and I'd bring in some smaller mounted animals, some hides, some traps, and and actually teach the class on wildlife management, and I'd get some pushback from a few students, and I it was like, give me ten minutes if what I'm talking about doesn't intrigue you just a little bit, he has a place for you to go to in the library and you, you can dismiss yourself. You don't yeah. even have to ask a question. I'm not going to stop you, whatever. Nobody ever left. And it was one of those things that, you know, I took pretty good pride in it, just being able to, so much of it is either media, media driven. Uh, Disney <laughs> is a huge <laughs> culprit. Um, Fucking and, Bambi. Well, <laughs> well, no, it's, it, it absolutely is. So those those misnomers and 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 those fallacies oh that are just put out there about hunting being bad you know um or any types of you know wildlife management that involves hunting trapping fishing is just you know just really da- look down on severely it's really the it's managing the ecosystem so keeping the population at a healthy state is yeah. really important because allowing a couple sick animals to be around can actually cause much more detriment than than uh potentially over hunting because it could wipe everything out as opposed to take out more than half of the numbers so i i think that when people um, have a negative connotation around hunting itself they really just don't understand all of the variables at play. Mm-hmm. And this is not just like an issue with hunting. This is, you know, f- forest and land management for all the wildfires we have here in California. Yeah. And doing Spotted prescribed stuff, burns. All of that. Yeah. And, and performing prescribed burns. It's really about keeping our ecosystems in a healthy state. You have seen quite a bit of stuff over the last 20 years. Uh, 35. 35? Started when I was 16. He's got so, that AGE, man. <laughs> I, you started when you were young. I just didn't know how, what the actual date was since yeah. you've been running Westward Wildlife Taxidermy. Can you just give us a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like running an oper- a taxidermy operation um, at any point in the day for you? Yeah. Um, well, as you guys know, I mean, you're, you wear many hats in, in, in a 
you know, running your own business. It's, uh, you can be, you know, cleaning the toilet from one day and writing the checks the next, you know, and, and all inside of 10 minutes. So, but over that 35 years, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's diversified a lot. It was pretty simple, obviously, when I first started out. Um, then, you know, just doing kind of local stuff, simple stuff, deer, bears, you know, elk, and then branching out into international big game, uh, figuring out that process. And I did that pretty quickly. Um, I have a customs broker that I work with that I've worked with for about 30 years. And, and so her and I, and her husband, I mean, they, they clear stuff for me. They've cleared stuff for Dick and Mary Cabela when, uh, when Dick was still alive. So the Cabela's stores, I mean, you know, um, you know, they know what they're doing. And so, you know, there's a lot of these, these things that have just kind of gone through a maturation process over the years that has been, it's been kind of, been kind of cool, you know, to see where it came from, to see where it is today. And it's still growing. Um, it's kind of crazy. It, it is definitely kind of crazy. Um, where the, the fact where we used to, you know, charge a certain amount for a deer head, you know, shoulder mount at this time, that's our deposit now, mm-hmm. you know? So the prices have really stepped up. Um, but also too, um, you know, just like with everything post pandemic and, and things like that, uh, materials got a little tough to source, um, and all of those, uh, materials got exponentially more expensive. Um, so we've seen that too, um, with our, with foam prices, uh, all of our mannequins that we use that, w- that we mount our animals on are all polyurethane foam forms. So it's a two part foam mixture. It's an A and B part mixed up, put into a mold. It's made to expand. And then that's our, that's our form. Um, and that's our basic beginning so we can cut them apart, do whatever we want for, with them and create anything. Um, let your imagination run wild in your checkbook. So, and we can, we can do whatever you want. <laughs> and and <laughs> so, your checkbook. So I would yeah. also assume you've been doing this. Cause we can 30, do anything you want. It just costs money. Yeah. yeah. 30, 30 plus years. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I would imagine your work product is, is quite great. You know, I've seen some of the work that you've done. I mean, huge nine foot tall bears mm-hmm. you know all the way down to i've seen some uh birds in there right and we've um, done everything from a rat to an elephant yeah and i mean your Literally. work is just it's um, that's your new tagline by it the way. is second to none <laughs> is what i've seen so Appreciate over that. the last 30 years how did you like what were the defining moments from going from just you know some like local game to now probably one of the most well-known taxidermists here in North America. Well, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're with any business, you're going to make mistakes. Um, and it was definitely failing forward, um, and learning. Um, there's been a lot of just growth that has come out of it and also being willing to take a chance on certain things. I mean, the first time I went to go mount a deer, I was working, you know, in, in the shop in Old Town Roseville and told John I was going to mount a deer and he laughed. And so I was like, okay. And so I mounted that deer um, and I mounted a bobcat too, which I still have. Um, and 
I took it to our state show that year and oh, I think I won a third with the deer and I won a third with the with the bobcat and I won best of category or something like that and by chance the year before he had taken a deer and a bobcat and he'd won a third with both of them John did yeah and he'd and he'd been in for into it for those were the first animals I'd mounted and you were in it for three months well no I was I, I'd been working for him for about a year at okay. that a little over but it was it was a short time and it those were the first animals that I'd mounted so and then taking that from you know there were certain things where I, I just kind of always figured out a way of you know where was the money um you know where I didn't really necessarily like to do birds I did birds but then I've got great employees that are fantastic you know and do them and do them very efficiently because I don't want to be just a big game guy I don't want to be just a fish guy a bird guy what do you have what do you need oh you need your your trophy room you know redone you need your uh trophy collection from your passing husband uh you know assessed assessed and valued and 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 done we've done appraisals put up for auction no we and we've brokered the sale of collections so that's one of those i i just i looked at no as a bad word and all it was going to do is cost me money if i said no because if i said no to your bird and you took it to this guy over here and he did birds and deer next thing you know he was going to be his customer so it was about retention and how how could i retain you and keep you here and we take care of everything you need if we need all of your trophies cleaned in your house we're going to come over there we're going to take them out we're going to you know clean them all off dust them shine them back up make them look all nice and you know pretty again put them back up there tell you if there's any bug issues or anything like that if there is and carry on um on to moving collections broker the sale of them appraising them um redoing trophy rooms installing new trophy rooms or just you know it may just be your son's first fish that he caught it doesn't matter i mean it, it it just came down to what do you have and what you know and what do you want done with it and i mean obviously within guidelines of the law because we've done all sorts of protected birds but they come with lots of paperwork um and that's we just won't do anything without that. I mean, it has to. It has to have all of that. Well, yeah, it's got to be above board. Now, yeah, for what, sure. What's the process if somebody, for whatever reason, comes to you, Mister Yes Man, and says, "Hey, I would, I would like to, you know, um, hire you to be a taxidermist for whatever I have." What's the process generally from start to finish look like, and how long does that take? Yeah. So right now we're out quite a ways because we're, we're very busy probably here within the last two years there was about eight taxidermists that left the area and even at that time here we were already very busy and then it just got ridiculous so I mean there's that um, and we work a lot of hours to to try or and and are still working a lot of hours to get caught up um, I'm not sure if that caught up thing is ever really going to happen but i mean it's a good good and bad problem to have you just have um, a work queue it sounds like what's that you just have a work queue it sounds like yeah it's just it's constant 
And it, there's never a time where I'm sitting there going, man, I wonder what I'm going to do today. You're going to work your <laughs> ass off today is what you're going to do and just keep doing it and keep doing it. And so, and that's it. I mean, my boss is a dick, but he pays me well. Yeah, I know him too. He's a real dick. Yeah. Um, but so what does that process look like? So they bring their animal to you. Yeah. And then, then what, what do you do? Like what, what is that process? Yeah. So, getting it so with the different animals, it's a little different just depending on if it's a bird. Um, they'll usually bring me the whole bird. Um, we'll usually stick it in the freezer until it's kind of time for us to start messing with it. And we'll skin the bird out. Um, and basically that's, you are basically just taking the skin off of the bird with the feathers intact. You take the legs off. Um, the wings or the wing bones will stay intact and remove all the flesh fat. Um, we wash the, wash the skin, degrease it, wash the feathers. Cause a lot of times there'll be, there'll be, um, blood or dirt or whatever that may be in there and we'll get them all cleaned up get them all blown back dry again and then mount them on a uh, form and, and whatever position the customers ask for with a deer or any animal that has a, f- you know, has hide and fur. We're sending them to our tannery, uh, after we've fleshed the hide, got all the meat and fat off of it. Um, and then we'll salt dry them with salt. The salt <coughs> will, um, the, the, the hair follicles like a cup. And so it, it, the hair sits in there and what causes uh, the hair to fall out and for the skin to spoil is bacteria. So bacteria will act as like a lubricant. And if bacteria grows, and there's two things that cause bacteria to grow, and that's heat and moisture. So if you have too much heat and you have obviously moistures in the skin already um, and you allow that to stay, it, what will happen is regardless if you salt that skin and there's too much bacteria in there it'll act like a lubricant and it'll let that hair fall out when it goes through the tanning process so um when that skin's nice and fresh because we can't use anything that's spoiling or anything like that or rotten um it won't survive the process because it's already being broken down by its own you know time and and bacteria we'll take that It'll, we'll soak it down uh, after we get it back from the tannery. It ter- basically turns it into leather uh, with the hair on. We'll get that back. We'll soak it down. Um, we'll get some measurements off of it, order a form, and that forms that polyurethane form that we were talking about earlier. And we can either alter it, cut it apart, make it what we want. And then there's actually anatomically correct eyes that are painted per species for that animal. We'll put those in there, put the ears back in there. Um, and there's usually an ear liner that goes inside the ear. We'll remove the cartilage because the cartilage will cause them to curl a lot of times. So a lot of people, I, I I would imagine they go, Oh, you know, you're a hunter or or you're a, a a big game or a trophy hunter, whatever else. What Mm -hmm. they don't know about you is you're also an artist. Yeah. I mean, you very much are an artist bringing these, uh, animals back to life. Right. You know, and like I said, I've seen some of your work. It's second to none. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to uh, show some pictures of trophy rooms and other things that you've done on the final sort of touched up version of the podcast. Um, but let's say somebody didn't have to wait for you. Hold on, Alan. Alan, hold on. We, we do have some photos available here that Scott's got off screen. So, so that was it, a short-eared owl that we did for a nonprofit that that owl actually passed away. It was one of their birds. Uh, that was a pair of bobcats with a covey of quail. That was my muskox that I killed in in 
the Arctic Circle up in Nunavut. So that was one of the bear skulls that I had, uh, was telling you about um, that we actually took. That was a bear that was killed last year and uh, with a completely shattered jaw. So I we processed that one, cleaned it all up, and you can tell that bear had actually had a broken jaw for quite a long time because it was calcified. And you right. saw that real rough spots on yeah. there. How, uh, and how do you it, think the bear broke its jaw? Who knows? He could have gotten a fight. He could have been hit by a car. Yeah. Um, I've seen all sorts of things when it comes to them and that they've survived broken toes, broken legs. Um, Just you, shit you, happens. You, you name it. I've so. seen them where they've sh- they've they've survived gunshot wounds, uh, being shot, uh, found fully mushroomed bullets in there, stuck in the hide before, but they've uh, been shot through and through and it stayed there and recovered the bullet and they've healed and gone on uh there was another there was a couple animals i've seen that have been uh shot with arrows and survived and animals are resilient it's uh that will to live is incredible i agree with you so Uh, the question there's a couple more photos scott you want to pull those back up that's a trophy room that we redid i actually mounted that elephant too that was the brown bear that i killed with my bow holy crap I think it's huge. That's the, a goat. A yeah, we, goat. So that was a that's a grand slam of sheep right there. And I was actually on uh, two of those hunts with that guy. Um, he actually hired me on his last hunt, the the Rocky Mountain Bighorn, the one on the on the left. Um, he bought that tag um, and went to Wyoming, and it. So each state has governor's tags where it could be anywhere from one to like Wyoming, I think has seven. And they put those usually up for auction. And he bought that tag for, I think, 78000 yeah, And that was on the cheaper end because um, that tag was usually going somewhere around ninety grand. Um, so he bought that tag and hired me to go out there on the hunt with him. And I took care of the animal, brought it back, uh, mounted it, and kind of the condition was is that I think we shot it in September. He wanted it in his house before Thanksgiving. And it was a fast turnaround. Super fast. And it it cost him, but it, we did it. And like he like I was gonna ship it and he's like, uh uh-uh, uh, it's not leaving your site. Is I this said, the guy you drove across three days. Yeah, yeah. I drove I, I drove from here to Blackwood, New Jersey. And installed it in his house and flew home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Savage. Aaron yeah. told me the story on the way home from the Oregon trip. So the guy basically just told him he's like, hey, "You're not letting that thing out of your sight." Yeah. And the 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 sheep that was on the top, the white one, the doll sheep. I ex- that's actually the hunt that I I met him on. He had killed the the one on the right is the stone sheep, the dark one, that one there. Uh, yeah, he, he killed that one before I had known him. And then he was on his doll sheep hunt when I met him. And then he went to Texas and shot the desert bighorn, which is in the center below him, below the white doll sheep. And then the last one, his grand slam ram was his, uh, his Rocky. That he so for, 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 this is like something that if you're an avid hunter, a grand slam is, is that the Mecca of, of hunting? Is um, yeah, yeah for tier? the most, because it like, that's going to cost you like so his little grand slam of sheep right there, it cost him about a quarter million bucks. Just to shoot all four of those sheeps or to yeah. shoot them and the taxidermy? Uh, sheep, uh, sheep hunts. Um, 
taxidermy yeah all of it kind of all rolled into one because we did that we did his little room um and that's that's kind of a small scene um but it's it, it was a really cool one just because it was small but it showed him off really well so, so how much would those retail for like let's say you had an estate sale the people passed away the fraction of came. that yeah but what i was saying was like is there a secondary market oh there is yeah i mean there's a couple companies that we work with that auction taxidermy and that we that we worked with on several occasions that um that's what they do is they they will they will market a lot of that and there's a couple guys that i know that that's what they do is they sell uh old taxidermy or take it and they'll either re they'll say like that old moose had a that old moose mount was a really awesome set of horns or antlers but the mount was kind of beat up so what they'd take they'd buy it take the antlers off of it, get another cape, uh, another hide for it, remount it, and then sell it there on a secondary market to, you know, you, you get some of these like restaurants or, you know, uh, different places that will want them and put them in entryways and all sorts of stuff. So he's, he's had quite a bit of that. So help me out here. So let's just say start to finish, you had time, somebody brings you a deer and they want you to do it start to finish. Generally about how much time does that take from, them bringing the on our normal turnaround time we we like to like we really like to keep it down to within a year right now we're about double that we're about a two-year wait right now well you're at, you're at from the time you get it to the time you deliver the finished product right now yeah and that's because of how long the process is uh no it's, it has to do with our backlog Okay, I mean, so, we're, so but generally speaking, l- let's say that your backlog is say if, is we, not if, if we had one piece and we walked it through. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you can do them pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, you guys are a obviously very popular. Like I said, work work product is second to none. But that's just a good general rule of thumb. If somebody was looking for a very high end, very quality taxidermist, you know, uh, if they were looking at a time frame or whatever else. Yeah, they could do that. And then obviously if they were a pre-existing client or, you know, the pay was higher, they could speed that up. But Chris, that was everything that I had on just the timing. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the trophy room design next because mm-hmm. this is sort of the next evolution of the I don't want to turn money away mm-hmm. um, chapter in the book of just generally making more money. You had just done uh, what I think is your first large trophy room build out. Is that correct? Yeah, in in this concept, yes. It's not our first trophy room we've done. We've done a lot of redesigns, kind of shuffling of the cards, take everything off the walls, redo, you know, rehang them. Is this your first one that you fabricated from start to finish? Yeah, in, in, in this capacity. But, I mean, it's nothing that we haven't done on a lot smaller scale. It was just on steroids. That's right. It. The, the the depth of the work done was a lot deeper than traditionally. Yeah, it's just it, like I said, much grander scale. Instead of using a panel to make a a, a, a particular piece, we we use sixty. So, and we had talked nineteen foot ceilings, fourteen hundred foot space in the game room for this gentleman's house that you did this for. Yeah, and basically and it took up, up two of the walls. About how long did it take in terms of time to complete the trophy room? So from start to finish and we still got some final finalization that we've got going on you're running right about three weeks three weeks yeah and the the thing that really stuck out in my mind is when you told me the cost to build Mm -hmm. this because it's such a highly specialized 
unit of work to get done. Right. And there's not a lot of people who know how to do this. The price point on these trophy room buildouts, the market rate is a couple hundred thousand dollars to start. Easily, yeah. Just it depends on it depends on how many panels you're going to use, um, and how how extensive the habitat is. You start adding trees in there, it gets real expensive real quick. Um, you can have a thirty thousand dollar tree in there. Um, that's it gets substantial, but it all comes apart. It's not real wood, so I mean, there's a a scene that I did for a client here locally that was just with some some ducks. He had ten mallard ducks that he wanted. And he wanted them all mounted kind of, he told me initially, he's like, oh, I just wanted to mount them, you know, like on fishing line, hanging from the ceiling, like they're flying. I said, well, that's kind of 1970s once their duck mount back. I was like, <laughs> we don't really do that kind of thing anymore. Some people may, but we don't. Um, so what we did is I went and looked at his, the room where he was wanting to do it. And what I did is, um, uh, fabricated a branch canopy of you know of a of a tree that it cantilevered off of a beam off the side of his uh, off the side of his room came up it split the light that uh hung over his pool table and all of these birds were coming through the the tree so like back in arkansas and where they hunt a lot of hardwood you know flooded timber um, and even some places here, uh, along certain sloughs, you'll get ant- birds that'll have to drop through the trees and they'll, they'll come down pretty quick. And, uh, that's kind of what he was wanting replicated. So that's what we did. And so I fabricated this thing. It all came apart. Um, but I went in there and installed it and put 10 mallards in there and he was a happy man. So it's a, it's a modular system. So when you go back to the trophy room design, mm-hmm. the trees are obviously modular because these these scenes essentially have to they have there's maintenance associated with them. They have to be cleaned on a, on every, you know, occasion. I don't know what occasion is or how long that is. But the the build out of these rooms start at probably a price point is it like 300, 400,000? Well, it depends. Like I said, it just depends on how how big or small. I mean, I've I've looked at you know, rocks or habitats that we're looking at are 10 15,000 but there's they're quite they're a bit small. they're quite a bit smaller i mean this one here was 60 panels ish and um and these panels are four by they're like four by eight sheets of plywood almost and they're actually yeah cat- I, got, I sent scott a photo he can pull it up yeah here. they're 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 foam panels uh there's framing that goes on underneath them so there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes guy. into it um you know, so in inside this one, actually, there's a closet inside of it. So there's a cave that goes into it. So it's not just dead space underneath it. Um, so there's a big storage area underneath there. A lot of guys we've dad had that have uh, put gun vaults in there, uh, bathrooms that they've hidden in there. Um, the man cave. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, that's what this is. It's it's just a big man cave. There's going to be a bar in there. There's a big seventy inch, you know, eighty seventy or eighty inch TV in there. Um, is that, is that a large build out? Would you say that the medium size, large size? I don't, that one's, that one's kind of medium ish. Um, you know, there's one of, uh, one of the other guys that are, that's in the business that I know he doesn't touch a room if it's under a million bucks, you know, but he's also done $40 million buildings too, that are three years, you know, and that's yeah. Huge. The champion ranch. I mean, it's a, it's a big place. But it's also hundreds and thousands of square feet of of 
just trophy display. It's a work. It's a it's, it's a, a museum. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's honest. about museums because this is basically the stuff you'd see in museums. Yeah, it, it, it's essentially. I mean, that's what it is. So, I mean, this isn't new to our industry at all. Um, but the just with time, the materials have gotten better. Um, where we used to have to do a lot of this stuff with burlap and plaster and make all this stuff. Now these panels make it a lot easier because we can screw them together um, and break them up, and every one of them is completely unique to itself. So it makes it pretty. It, like you can what? you can just kind of let your imagination run wild. It's it, it's really it it really kind of gets my creative juices flowing because it's something I really like, and none of it is ever the same. Ever. That is so badass. I, I, yeah, Look up at the screen. It's so different. So that's just within the last couple of days. And that, you know, we've started, you know, we've introduced some of the animals that are actually going to be in there. And um, it's kind of coming together to the last little bit of foliage we've got to put in there. Um, but that place is, it's going to be really, really cool once it's all done. That is you so know? slick. Yeah. That is it's sweet. It, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I kind of just sit back there and kind of go, damn. I mean, you know, what I had in my mind was really close. But um, there's a couple different places in that mountain where, you know, we put the rock up and. Doesn't look right. That looks like shit. And we just take it off and, and you know. Come up with something new. Yeah. So, and it will, and just redo it. And it just, it, it, it worked out really well and it, it came together really, really nice. To Alan's point, you know, there's a, I didn't really think of your business this way, but you really are an artist. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, what Alan said was very true. There's just not, and it's kind of what dictates the price point because there's not a lot of us out there um, that can do this, do it well, and do it with the, the detail and knowledge that we have. I mean, let alone like, the well, construction it's not, ability. It's the accuracy well, right. too, right? You know exactly. what these animals look like in nature. You, you out of everyone for how long you've been in this industry, it's like, right. There's so much they're paying for. Right. And, and that's the, and it's like that knowledge is, is really kind of priceless because it, it's like, where else are you going to gather all that and have that in one person or, or a couple? Cause it's like, my buddy Eric, who works with me, and we're partners in this company. Uh, that's it's one of those things. It's like I can put something in his hands, and it's like me doing it, and vice versa. Because we got in the in the industry about the same time. We've done a lot of the same same things, um, but still, like we both bring a lot to the table when it comes to you know doing these different things. Where he's maybe done some of more of these projects you know um on his own where i have a really good depth of knowledge in you know building and construction um because that's been part of my background too right uh, do you mind if i go yeah go ahead and also like for example let's say somebody goes hey i want to have this display of um sheep from you know south asia or whatever it's like how many people have been to Mongolia on a hunt mm-hmm. that can say they did that? Okay, well, I know what the landscape looks like. Like, what time of the year are you thinking? Right. Okay, does that match? I'm not sure if, like, the 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 animal looks differently or sheds, but it's like, you know, does that match the time of the year in which you shot this thing? You know, you have all these things that go together with that uh, artwork. And then, like you said, when you are creating it and you're piecing together and you were like, oh, those rocks don't really look that good. 
you know, that process, like this isn't something like it's construction, like lay it out, build it up, slap it up, do whatever. Like, yeah, you're doing fabrication, but it's also custom. And then I equate it to not only being an artist, but then being like a subject matter expert and going, hey, these two things don't go together. We're not going to actually put it in there. So it's like it's this very interesting blend of science and artists. And <laughs> right. Really digging it. You're no, and, and, I, and I've, I've actually stopped clients from because they have an idea of certain things. And unfortunately, um, you know, well, actually, fortunately for them, I have the experience where I've seen so much of this stuff. And even though, yes, it's a basically it's a dead animal on the wall if we want to get down to the brass tacks of it. But if they're hung wrong, displayed wrong, they scream at you. I mean, it's a little bit of that interior design and knowing what's going to work and how things need to flow. Like when you actually, when you walk into a room, like that room that I, I think that Scott showed that had the elephant on it or in it, um, we redid that entire room. That room has 204 pieces in there. And when I did that room. Things were in there, and they were just kind of hodgepodge together. Did there was really no rhyme or reason why stuff was put up it's there? It's like when they got shot. If they came in, well, like, they, that they was they my forty ninth animal. No, go in well, the forty ninth position. Well, no, yeah. just yeah, they just went up on the wall for yeah. whatever reason. So I went in there, took everything off the walls, filled every hole in the wall, repainted, and then started fresh. And so when we went through there, separated them by by you know. African animals, North American, dangerous game, spiral horned wall. That was the four, how we split it up. We had a little Southeast Asia uh, section in there for the stuff that he killed in uh, New Zealand and Australia. So when we did all that and got finished with it, I think there's a picture in there too. Scott, it hit, that room was very packed and he had, he had, uh, had a crocodile that was taking up a lot of room. We actually ended up hanging it from the ceiling. Have you ever killed a crocodile? No, huh? Uh-oh. Is that on your list? At some point, like I said, uh, them, Michelle. No, no that, that's a that's a Chew all, that's an that's an alligator. Chew them, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, no, there's there's a lot of other things that I'd much rather go after than that. But I mean, I, I, I want to ask you a question. You're I I've seen your products. I'm seconding what Alan says. You're second to none, in my opinion, for the work that I've seen and the level of craftsmanship and the the level of detail. It's just the eye for the detail. When somebody is wanting to build a trophy room, like the one we just showed on the screen, 19 feet, 1500, 19 feet foot tall ceilings, 1,500 square foot space, tons of animals, different layers, a cave with like a hidden closet in it. What is different between you and everyone else in the industry who can do this? What makes somebody want to say, I want to work with Aaron Armstrong? Well, when it comes to that, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. Um you know, we we really take a, a real depth of pride in our work. Um, I don't have 15 employees that are that are, you know, coming in there and we're just kind of running a mill, you know, and, you know, knocking this thing out and we're in and out of there. We're working efficiently, but you're we're going to take that extra time to add these little details that a lot of other people just aren't going to um, our price points a little bit better. Um but also too, I mean, and, but even then I don't fault those, our competitors for their price point or what they do. It's what they do. I mean, there's a certain amount of people that are going to go with them. There's a certain amount of people that are going to go with us. And I, I mean, 
there's enough to go around. I, and, and like even in the taxidermy industry, I couldn't do everything, even if I had a gang of employees and it, whatever. It yeah. just, it's just, it's, it's not really. You're, you're, you're not going to be able to meet the fans of the entire market. No, uh-uh. and there's really no reason to try. Uh, I mean, I, I like to do, do other things to? because yeah. part of your value is the fact that you still actively hunt. You still actively do these trips for 22 years. You've been trying to get that tag right. for the Grand Slam. Like that's part of what makes you great is you have this symbiotic sort of relationship with also the animals and the process of getting them, not just the process of uh, sort of you know putting them in this uh, art form right once they've uh, once they've been uh, uh, killed. But on the flip side, you're also a pretty badass CrossFitter, and you also rode bulls. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think with the health and fitness type things that kind of bonded there is that with hunting, it you're eating kind you're eating the organic of organic. There's nothing there's nothing better than that. I know how that animal is, you know, dispatched, taken care of, processed, and now he's on my table. And like, I raised my daughter that way. That girl has zero food allergies. Uh, she doesn't need to be gluten free. She doesn't, she's not lactose intolerant. She's not any of those things, but she was raised pretty much exclusively on wild game or fish that was in our freezer that I caught, um, and, or crab that I caught or bought straight off my buddy's boat that was still alive. Um, so that the hunting balanced out the nutritional portion of it. And, you know, both of you guys are both really fit too. So, I mean, um, you know, in our kind of group that we hang out with, we're all, you know, have that like mindset of that lifestyle because it is a lifestyle, you know. It is. It 100% is a lifestyle. I, I really think when it comes into just our crew in general, people out there aren't going to know who it is and I'm not going to talk about it. It's basically just... A bunch of dudes, doesn't matter what age you are, we get in and we get after whatever workout we're doing and somebody comes up with something and somebody else always makes it harder. <laughs> and mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we all get it done. Mm-hmm. And we just do that on repeat. And it's a way of conditioning ourselves physically and mentally. And there, it's basically, I, I've described this to people over the last four or five years. It's like, if I'm going to war, these are the people I'm going to war with. Fuck yeah. They're right. men- I've seen their mentality get tested. I've seen them when they're tired. I've seen them when stuff goes wrong. I've seen their physical abilities. Like, if I'm going to have to go and get in a, a firefight with somebody, the, I don't care how old these people are. These are people I'm going in with because every one of these people, it's this is the unit I want. I have no bad sheep in this squad. Yeah, yeah there's, because- there, there's no quit in here. I mean, because no. in... You, you got to kill me for the, me to quit. The, these yeah. are lions we're running with. I mean, the, if there's if there's weakness, it's going to get found. You will be that three-legged antelope on the plains, and we will start messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Yes, yes. it does yeah, happen. And true. it happens to all of us, too, because yeah. it's just like that little chink in the armor, and everybody kind of straightens you back up real quick, and it's like, oh, shit, yeah. You get pounced on yeah. friend, in a friendly, friendly way. but, but yeah, And sometimes not on. so friendly, because sometimes we need that. Yeah, that's you know, true. But, but still, it's... Uh, it is that 
definite iron sharpening iron. It's, and there's a yeah. bunch of sharp motherfuckers in that group. Yeah. It's the I'm reason about why. about the language, but still. It's all right. We, I, I, say, yeah. I say fuck on here all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it my fucking turn? <laughs> fucking go. Yeah. Oh, fucking K. Uh, Don't shut the fuck up. I won't. Let's go. Uh, so I have always described this group of people, like you said, iron sharpens iron, you know, running with a pack of lions. Mm-hmm. This, I, I've always described them as working out with the savages. Um, you, you want to be around those type of people, especially as a male, because... Ma- masculinity is not toxic. It's a dying breed. It masculinity days. is actually in the core of being a man. And and when you're in a place where you get to build, you get to sharpen, you get to work on that, you get to practice your discipline, and then you get to be around other examples who are leading their families, who are, you know, the breadwinners, who are working out hard, who are selfless, who are family first who are focused on nutrition and health who are doing what you're doing and going out and hunting for your food and fighting for your way and building that community of people and i mean we all hang out together like this this is our tribe we talked about this with doris malakitis that Mm -hmm. um we as a society have gotten away from sort of our tribal communal living and that was really how we work and operate and that's how we work best and so when I say, you know, working out with the savages, I, I think about it as like, this is our community of people that like Curtis said, if we're going to war, like if shit, if shit's, you know, going to hell in a handbag, like I know who I'm trying to figure out, Hey, who's still alive? Who's still here? Like, what are we doing? This is the group of people. Cause like Doris said, Hey, I, I got a 400 acre ranch. It's off grid. I have a doctor and this and this and spec ops and security ops and whatever else. I think to myself, like, <laughs> These people here all have unique skill sets from... The crazy thing is, is we all live within about three miles. Of yeah, I yeah. Know, that's yeah. the crazy yeah. part. It's, it's pretty amazing. And so, I mean, um, with that, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good group. It's a solid group uh, with a lot of different, you know, uh, talents and, and personalities in it. Um, but, man, like I said there's not better people when it comes right down to it and they know who they are uh that yeah you'd like to have in your corner and because in and it's one of those things too where the types of people that if you needed anything your (laughs) your wife taking care of your kids picked up from school whatever you could trust them with that yeah yeah Yeah, you're not even gonna think twice no no and that and that's you know that's that's the that's the great thing about it you know you know, so yeah, it's a it's it's a good group, but you know, also in there, there's a lot of very driven people like yourselves, um, business owners, very sharp people, bright minds. Uh, I mean, we, we all we're, excelling in their careers, family lives. Yeah, kids right. are all all well put together. It's 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 a culmination of a variety of, of things that really promote a level of masculinity that I think is incredibly healthy. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's very, very much something in my life that I have to have and be around because, um, me being kind of one of the older guys in the, or basically one of the oldest in there, um, you know, you guys push me 
and make me better because it's like damn if i want to be taking up the you know taking up the end or anything like that you yeah. know so yeah um, you and i you actually know. got to compete in a crossfit competition together it's a shame i didn't send the, the photo <laughs> for this but uh, we got to go to the crossfit ranch and do a little charity fundraiser in 2020 during covid well and that, yeah. that was another thing too like for or, i mean our group during covid was very indicative of how we operate i mean yeah. like we didn't do a lot of what the media was telling you to no, do we opened up the gym no. doors well and and we hung out just like we normally would and we worked out when we normally would and guess what if one of us were sick we just didn't come right i don't know how i don't know how true that one was it was every uh, once in a while there was a, not a part of the group yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um but no i mean still it was just i mean we had get-togethers but we operated as normal and yes you know business I mean, as usual yeah it, yeah. it was it, but also too like if somebody was sick it's like hey do you need anything you know that yeah. there was all of that so it's it's just kind of like you know when you're running with a, a group like that that same kind of group are the group of hunters that i tend to try to be around and stuff too i want to ask you a you question know. about the the types of people in the hunting industry Is there's good and bad Good and bad. Yes. Okay. And, and with the good ones, hunting's a very physical, physically demanding yeah. uh, uh, way of life. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of the hunters are, are physically fit, or do you find that they could just kind of be lazy and use money to pay an outfitter to do all the work for them? Um, it depends. I mean, you know, you. I think um, the health and fitness portion part of it is, has been greatly emphasized and uh, an awesome microscope has been put on it by like cam haynes i mean run a marathon a day and he he trains to hunt and it's great uh my buddy chad mendez you know the ufc fighter he he's a savage he gets after it all the time and he's retired now so but yeah. he's still very physically fit and i mean i don't see that guy you know taking very many days off and he's got a multiple companies wife and daughters and things like that and same thing even like with cam yeah, he's I moving mean, those guys are going same thing with myself. I'm, you, I'm not doing and, that either. You and Chad connected on, actually on a fishing trip, right? Yeah. That's well, I'd known him before that and stuff, but I, that was the first time I'd actually got to go and, uh, and hang out with, you know, just kind of have some of that, you know, outdoor time with him. And you had an issue with your elbow that you had from your PBR days. Yeah. Where, I mean, you were, you did PBR for a decade. I mean, talk about a ruthless sport. But uh, you you and him had the same elbow or the same orthopedic surgeon for your elbow. Well, I correct? don't know. the Actually, the surgeon actually happened. Um, was he on the trip too? The, the surgeon was on the trip. I think the surgeon was on the trip by accident because um, we kind of absorbed some members of a of a trip that were on those same dates. So I think that's kind of how it happened. But uh, Dr. Mora had uh, – he's worked on Michael Bisping. He's worked on TJ Dillashaw. uh Kamaro Usman, he's uh, he's worked on a bunch of UFC he's, fighters. He's the fighter's orthopedic surgeon. Kind of, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, I don't know if he's done anything with Chad at all, um, but uh, he had definitely worked on his fair share of, of MMA fighters. And, and uh, when I explained to him what was going on with my elbow, um, I was lacking motion. Um, I, you know, my range was cut way down. It just all of a sudden kicked in and, and yeah, but it was also my riding arm. So it, it had, I hadn't been nice to it, you know, over the years. She had so, taken a beating. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 
Well, um, let's let's save the bull riding because if yeah. you would like, would you be open to coming back and talking about the bull riding days and all that crazy stuff? Because I feel like there's a decade worth of discussion in that for fun. Yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, yeah. that's not a problem. I mean, it's a it's a it's a segment of my life, but I mean, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. It was um, I watched. Um, I was in the PRCA first, which is a prof- professional radio cowboys association. That was the ones like it puts on, uh, that, uh, like Folsom rodeos affiliated with. Um, but the PBR was actually formed by 20 professional rodeo cowboys that were 10 or 12, uh, 20 bull riders. They all put in a thousand bucks and, uh, a bunch of years later, they sold that thing for just under a hundred million. Savage, yeah. And like anything else, got to be driven, got to be fit, and you got to be determined to find whatever success looks like for you. Yeah, but they wanted to elevate the competition and everything. Um, yeah. The bulls, the the cowboys, all of it. They wanted more money, and so that was the way to do it. And it was all the best guys in the world. I mean, I when I was rodeoing and riding bulls, it was really in my opinion, really one of the best times because all the who's who, all the guys that the kids know about now are all the dudes I was riding during that same, with and during that same time. It was also, you've told me a couple stories, um, like all things in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, a lot of that era was still very dangerous. I mean, you told me there's, you'd seen a couple of guys pretty much get killed on impact. Uh yeah, buddy of mine, uh, Mike Mason, yeah. he was killed at Folsom, um, and that was right when, because most of the guys now either wear uh, helmets that are made for riding bulls or kind of a modified hockey helmet. Yeah. Um, they have. Uh, we had pr- protective vests that have like a uh, protective hard shell on the outside with a padding underneath. They came from the equestrian industry. Um, they're a little different. Uh, the equestrian industry have it's they're a little bit more mobile um these vests that we have are made to take blunt force trauma they're they're made to take getting stepped on they're made to take horns getting you know you getting hit by a horn um i have a protective vest that still has a dent in the back of it from when i got hit by it um and it knocked three rib heads out of my back and out of my sternum yeah i was pretty terrified the first time and the only time i hopped on a bull um and it was mechanical. Very, it was no. It wasn't <laughs> I was gonna say uh, uh, it was in what Lincoln. Was her name? It was my a <laughs> hey, baby. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was my freshman year of college playing football, mm-hmm. and there was some guy out there, and he was just you know, good old country boy. And he's like, "Hey, we're going out to Lincoln to uh, you know go ride some bulls, whatever else." I mean, this is what he had done his whole life. He's like, "You should come on out." So I'm like, "Okay." So I put in boots, put some boots and a jean on and go out. And he goes, "Hey." So what do you think? Do you want to ride one? And I'm looking at looking at him like, uh, are you out of your fucking mind? Like I'm I'm from like suburbia. I have no clue what the fuck I'm doing. I'm from the Ville. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. We we got like a smaller, medium sized one. We fine. We'll put you in. He said Kevlar vest, but it was more like what you described. Yeah. And I thought it was a hockey helmet, but maybe it was a bull riding helmet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. I'm like, fuck it. We'll give it a shot. Look at the bull. I'm going to hop on. And I'm like, it's not that big compared to the ones they're riding. No, they're all fucking big. That's just what yeah. it comes down to. <laughs> and uh, even though mine was smaller, 
They're over a thousand pounds, every one of them. So I'm sitting on the bull, getting strapped in, right? And it's fuck, it's shitting and flipping the shit up <laughs> in my face with its tail as I'm, I'm sitting there getting ready. And then they open the gate, and I have never in my fucking life gotten over a fence so fast when I got booked. I mean, I, I don't even think it was more than two seconds there, and I wasn't counting. Yeah. I was like, why Al- did I fucking do this? <laughs> yeah. Alan ejected himself. He's like, I'm out. No, yeah. I, I got on. It bucked me off, threw me up against the fence, right? And I just, like, my eyes must have been the size of Texas because as soon as I realized, like, where I was and, like, I had come to, I have never got over a fucking fence so fast in my life. Yeah. And then I thought to myself... Yeah, I'm never doing that again. That's just not for me. Jumping out of a perfectly good airplane done and that. hopping on a bull, not me. I've yeah, done both. You not know, me. I yeah. would do it if I had to do it, but I'm just saying if I have an option to not do it, I don't I don't think that's for me. You know, yeah. Alan, I got to say you must be good at getting out of fences in high pressure situations cuz when you had your your wreck at Sonoma, you got off the track and over the fence pretty quickly. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so you know, like the Jackass movies, yeah, and and all any of the bull scenes or the Toro teeter totter, uh, that came from Cotton Rosser up <laughs> in Marysville, yeah. yeah. And so, um, but those those were all filmed at my buddy's dad's ranch, uh, Judd's uh, Judd's dad Gary Lafew down in Napomo down by Santa Maria. <laughs> so they they filmed all that stuff down there, and and uh, yeah, Le- Judd was he's same age as me, and had and and we rodeoed together and things so it was uh his his dad was a world champion uh and is, still runs bull riding schools to this day he's kind of a personality all to himself so the so place that i went to was out in lincoln so you know if you drive yeah, that's, through the old lincoln? Hi, that's the high school rodeo grounds no it, no 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 it wasn't it wasn't the high school rodeo it, grounds it was a private it was a private ranch okay so i wasn't sure if you know of it but basically it's it's the old highway 65 once you get past that manufacturing facility on the right before it starts going into okay. Wheatland, yeah then you hang a right on i don't know whatever side street it is before dillard's the gun range uh-huh. and then it's like 10 15 the minutes or... back there mm-hmm. i don't know if you know the ranch yeah it, it, it could have just yeah it was probably just a private private, private place yeah. yeah but um so when I was coming up, I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about this or whatever, because, or you want to save it for your other episode. Yeah, we'll have you, we'll have you come back and do that. Whatever. But I mean, the uh, the bull riding stuff was definitely uh, a very interesting thing to talk about. And so for me, who was like, yeah, never again. You're like, oh, fuck yeah, let's do this thing for ten years. Hey, what what was the longest you ever rode a bull for? Oh, well, all you what need was your to. Record? Oh no, all you, all you need to is eight seconds. That's when you get a qualified ride. So and then you then you then you get a score after that. So if you don't ride them for eight seconds, you get zero, nothing. Okay, so eject your seat at eight seconds. Pretty much. All right. Get off or you get ejected off. You know. Yeah. Yeehaw. But (laughs) yeehaw, Aaron. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, boys. I appreciate Appreciate it. Appreciate you. And uh, you know, we look forward to having you next time. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks. If uh, if people want to find you, yeah, how can they get a hold of you? So um, we're on Facebook and Instagram. That's pretty much our modes of Western uh, Wildlife Taxidermy. Yeah, you can search for on either on either place and and find us if you type in Western Wildlife Taxidermy and, and search for us. And, and we're there. personally on Instagram, you're also underscore Aaron. That's A A R O N Hunts H U N T S underscore. Yeah, and then um, there's also uh, Western Wildlife Taxidermy on Instagram too, and it's just spelled out all one word. 
What about your new trophy room design business? Is that that's a different name? Yeah, so that's Trophy Mountain Concepts, and so that's uh, we're you know kind of in the infancy of getting that up and rolling and things like that. It's definitely going. But uh, if somebody wants know, a trophy room, they could contact you personally through, on Instagram or any of your Western Wildlife Taxidermy. Currently. Yeah, easily. Yeah, and you know we can. And and the thing is, it, it's it, we're not stuck to California. We can go anywhere for, with it. Um, our suppliers ship, and you know we we can we can do anything anywhere. All so, right, great. Now, if so, they want to get a hold of you, they can call eight six seven five three zero nine. Yeah, they're gonna get Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> so. But. All right, and we're done. Thank you, yeah. guys. We'll see Thank you later. You. Okay. Bye. Take care.